Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Brown University Pre-College Programs, where high school students experience college life, nurture their diverse interests, and make friends and memories that last a lifetime. You can apply online at precollege.brown.edu. And the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, after 10 weeks on the campaign trail, Michael Bloomberg finally got his chance to debate. But what could have been his moment to shine was really his moment to squirm, perpetually under attack for stop and frisk, sexist comments toward female employees, and campaign spending. Instead of disrupting the presidential race, he may have disrupted his own campaign. In a couple of minutes, we'll open lines and ask for your thoughts on last night's debate. And later in the show, we'll talk to Warren Surrogate, that's Congresswoman Ayanna Presley about Warren's dominant performance. For nearly two decades, the United States has been fighting a war in Afghanistan that seems to be going nowhere. Now, diplomats have negotiated a very fragile peace agreement with the Taliban. After 19 years, is the end in Afghanistan finally in sight? We'll talk to WGBH News Analyst Charlie Sennett about the possible end of America's longest war next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Jim Brady, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning. All I can say is, wow. <laughs> so let's hope that what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. You know, just whenever I was tiring of the Democratic debates, the predictable squabbling over Medicare for All, Amy Klobuchar's, I think, worn-out tale over Grandpa keeping his money in a coffee can, and Joe Biden taking us back to the glory days of the Obama administration. Last night's debate, for the ages. It was different. It was combative. It was a free-for-all. It was a fireworks display that probably outdid the one down the road at the Bellagio Casino. And for all the money that Bloomberg spent to get on the stage, he didn't realize he can't put a price on Senator Elizabeth Warren's debating skills. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Wow. We're taking your calls (laughs) on last night's debate, asking you, was this one for the ages? Was this the one that makes a difference? 877-301-8970. What were the moments that stood out for you? Was there a candidate who disappointed you, who who you think is done? Is there a candidate who won you over, who had not before? Uh, I have to say... I texted you at about 9.55. Yep, with exclamation points. That was about the best hour. (laughs) Maybe not the most substantive, even though there was a lot of substance. It was about the 9 to 10 hour before they sadly took a commercial break was about the best hour of political debating I've ever seen in my life. And I'm telling you, if you missed it out there, don't just watch the three-minute excerpts. Go back, go to NBC. I'm sure they have NBCnews.com or something and watch the whole first hour. Every line was more vicious than every other line. Here's Robert. He says, the big winner last night, hands down, was Saturday Night Live. Last (laughs) night looked like a stage version of (laughs) William Golding's Lord of the Flies. They looked ready to eat each other. Bloomberg would have gone beautifully with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. (laughs) Clarice. (laughs) Now, a couple of things. I I know everybody was either watching or has read about it or has seen or heard uh, a tape. I mean, the the biggest takeaways, I think, was several, I guess. Mm -hmm. One 
Warren was on fire. She was on fire. From beginning to... She had her hand raised the whole time. No, she did. And by the way, we have no idea uh, uh, what impact it's going to have for two reasons. Primarily, there's been a lot of early voting for the caucuses. Uh, Our colleagues in the control room say 75,000 people already. Uh, uh, So who knows what percentage had already voted before the thing. It goes without saying that I have never seen a person who has that kind of record, who is that unprepared for a debate Bluebird? as Bloomberg. Oh, yeah. He was prepared for nothing. We're going to play stop and frisk sound. The NDA response, non-disclosure agreements, was a total embarrassment yeah. from beginning to end. And he was lifeless. He was just standing well, on the edge of the stage, barely there. I think the pipe dream that uh, some Democrats have, that he was going to be the guy to go up against Donald Trump, I, I think that dream was hurt somewhat last night by his debate performance. I mean, he did seem to be kind of barely alive. Well, you know, the other thing, which I, I am betting, you know, you and I always talk about how much does the average voter know or doesn't know, not because they're stupid, but because they're busy and they have lives beyond what, you know, we do, obsessing on this. What percentage of the voters watching last night who are going to vote in a Democratic primary knew that Bloomberg voted for George W. Bush? I, mean, I don't know. That's a pretty... Big deal in light of the fact that I think everybody knows more of the more left leaning <laughs> Democrats vote in primaries than the typical Democrat and more right leaning Republicans vote in primaries than the typical yeah. ro- typical well, Republican. How many people really talked about horse face lesbians? I mean, oh, I, I, well, I mean, I didn't, listen, this is from this is from Jim. He says, I could only watch 10 to 15 minutes last night and then I switched to Cat's Tale on PBS. <laughs> I yearned for the time long ago when the decision was made by party leaders in Smoky back rooms. So there was a, a, a I, we were trying to figure out, Marjorie and I were talking about the sound with our colleagues, our coworkers this morning. One of the weirdest moments, we're going to get to your calls in a second, was an exchange. They were asking Bernie Sanders about why aren't you going to release all your medical records you promised to early oh, this on. this was good. He said he's released enough. So here's a little bit uh, of an explain, uh, a moment where Bernie calls out another candidate for related issues. Here is uh, Sanders, then Bloomberg. Thank you, Las Vegas, for the excellent medical care I got in the hospital two days. And I think the one area maybe the Mayor Bloomberg and I share, you have two stents as well. All right. 25 years ago. <laughs> well, we both have two stents. It's a procedure that it's done about a million times a year. Let me say my attitude. I've said this to you for the 20 years we worked together, Marjorie. There's never enough stent talk as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> In a presidential debate, and we finally, Bernie Sanders finally put it front and center. And more incredible than the two stent comment is that Bloomberg responds to it and says, I got mine 25 years ago. I know. The point of which is what? I don't know. That means he had heart problems in his 50s, I well, guess, actually, as opposed to waiting until his 70s. Point. You know, so which is not a particularly good sign. At least Bernie Sanders was 70 before he had his first problem. So I don't know what it means. All I can say is people are saying, oh, the Democrats, I mean, the emails are saying the Democrats are eating each other up and it's terrible. Frankly, I think it's great. I mean, we're getting down to the wire now. The, the debates have been so boring. You were like watch, watching paint dry. They were knock them, sock them. They're all going to come together, I would presume, when they have a nominee. And, and good for everybody fighting tooth and nail because this is the last chance for a lot of them to make an impression. Elizabeth Warren, who was leading in the summer, who's taken hits after hits after hits, good for her for getting out there and going after uh, – and you know what was nice, too? Mm. Uh, before she insulted Amy Klobuchar by saying her health care thing was like a post-it note or whatever she called it, there was that solidarity moment when she defended Klobuchar, sisterhood on stage, when she defended Klobuchar from those repeated hits. I didn't find that as genuine. I don't know about well, you. 
I didn't find it. But Warren was I liked incredible. It. And I Klobuchar, liked it. when you go Klobuchar's from defense. the top of the mountain, Klobuchar came in third in New Hampshire, obviously, because mm-hmm. of her brilliant debate performance the Friday before. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watch. I love the post-debate moments. Buttigieg turned, I think, to shake their hand, which would have been, her hand would have been tough because he really went at her big time. Uh, we'll play some of that sound a little bit later, too. And uh, she not only wouldn't shake his hand, she rushed off the whole stage. One of the worst debate performances on a whole variety of issues, criminal justice issues, her problem not knowing who, not only not knowing who the president of Mexico was, but apparently, according to one of the anchors, uh, the moderators, not knowing anything about the issue. Here is another horrible moment. Uh, when Bloomberg is trying to explain why these cases have been settled with women who have brought charges or sued and why he will not, in response to Senator Warren's questioning, uh, agree to waive the non-disclosure agreements. This is in the era of Me Too, talking about tone deaf. Here's just a little bit of what Bloomberg had to say. We have a very few non-disclosure agreements. How, how many Let me there? finish. How many is there? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just po- and let me point. And he talks about all the women who work for his company, his foundation, mm-hmm. and Warren's response is, well, I think what the mayor just said is, I've been nice to some well, women. Well, I the guess wo- he's upset that they didn't think the fat broad and the horse-faced lesbian jokes were funny. Apparently <laughs> not. And by the way, the woman, Garrison, uh, who that's the woman you've read a lot about, even if you don't remember her name, mm-hmm. who, when she says, when she told him at the company she was pregnant, she said in a lawsuit, he told her to uh, kill it, oh. said his response oh. about employees not liking his jokes obviously was... Ridiculous and really petty. Here's Christopher. Joe Biden makes me nervous every time he opens his mouth. Bernie's eternally ticked off. Liz W. trying to prove she's the smartest girl in the room. Bloomy kept his cool despite incoming. Pete seemed sanctimonious a bit. And Amy seemed the most genuine in the end. So there you go. I thought, by the way, I I thought Globishar's performance was beyond abysmal. Uh, Almost as bad as, as... as uh, uh, as the mayor Bloomberg's Warren was spectacular on fire. Uh, Sanders, the amazing part of this, and then we will take your calls to me, is I understand the goal was to go after Bloomberg because of his $400 million of spending rising in the polls. But the fact that nobody almost at all went at the guy who was surging in all the polls, Bernie Sanders, he's got to leave last night at 11 o'clock and say, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. Hey, he's got the same theme over and over and over again. He knows where he's coming. I mean, the authenticity thing, you can't knock it in Bernie Sanders. It is definitely it is definitely there. You know, I still I realize the power and the and the extent of the, of the wealth of the Bloomberg campaign yesterday. They opened up a Bloomberg for president office in uh in, in Brookline. <clears throat> there's sixty my, employees in Massachusetts and five offices. I went to go to my usual yoga spot where there's usually plenty of parking. Oh, here we go. And I saw all these signs. <laughs> On the parking spot, Mike Bloomberg for president. Cars will be towed if you rented not... all the parking spots. He rented a whole bunch. I would say he he rented quite a few of the parking. He spaces. has an office down the street. He has an office down the street. Speaking of yoga, by all the way, all of us yogis were very upset. Speaking of yoga, mm-hmm. and Marjorie is a very limber person. Limber. If you go to That's my right. Twitter page at Jim Browdy, B R A U D E, you can see Marjorie preparing for today's <laughs> show in a rather odd. Sort of way. I was doing a, I was doing a shoulder stand because it gets the blood rushing to your head sure. and it improves your thinking, Jim. Sure. And I, I need to be quick on my feet here. You were doing, doing a shoulder stand and I was doing a lie down, I call it. <laughs> as, I believe is the technical <laughs> yoga term for how I prepared. Okay. Uh, Mike in a car, you were first. Thank you much for being patient. Welcome to the show. Hi. I couldn't agree more. It was a great debate. I great. I the feistiness. Me too. Uh, you know, never, nobody was really playing it safe last night. That's and, true. And that's. 
that's what that's what we want. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, I, Elizabeth Warren has been this total media blackout on her recent times, and it, it's hurt her in the polls. And her last debate performance, she seemed start in the shadows. That girl last night was a honey badger. <laughs> I mean to tell you, she could she could deball Trump all day and then put. Trust me on this. She's a clear-thinking warrior is what you like. She's the general who keeps their wits about them in a you-know-what storm. Believe me. I saw that. She, I'm telling you, she's the one. She was you know, great. Bernie, I, I, I like Bernie, and I'm a big supporter of him. But if you remember back to the debate she had with Clinton, he had with Clinton, he had what you call senior moments, and that was a telltale sign that he could be in trouble. During the debates, she made some points later in the debate that he could have held against her for her earlier answers in the debate, and he didn't pick that moment up. He was only good for the moment and the question, which means your mind is somewhat brittle. It's, well, let me it's tell you, old I, age. Mike, thanks for the call. I, I didn't think he showed any signs of old age, actually. Uh, I thought he was sharp. I think she was extraordinary. And by the way, getting back to Mike's primary point, which we should have touched upon, you always watch these debates, I assume, no matter what party you belong to Mm -hmm. or no party, and say who is best positioned and worst positioned to stand toe-to-toe with Trump. You could see Warren last night running rings around him despite his debate skills. And if he was on a stage with Mike Bloomberg, I mean, they'd have to end the thing with a technical (laughs) knockout. I mean... Can you, um, I mean, you know, what did he call Jeb Bush? Low energy? I don't Low even energy. know what Bloom. It was, you know, the problem is when, when the. Stone faced. When, when the, there's so much anticipation of something, and this is unfortunate for Bloomberg, but he made his own bed by spending $400 million. When the expectations are so colossally right. high and you enter late and all eyes are on you, the threshold for you to have to cross is even higher. And he didn't come close. He, he might have pummeled. been fine in the pummeled. first debate pummeled. doing like that, but uh, entering late in the game. You know, Axelrod, who I think is one of the best political analysts He's great. On what the did planet, he say? He said, this is before uh, the debate, and obviously he was Obama's guy. And to his credit, even though he's a big-time Democrat, he's willing to call out Democrats, even mm-hmm. those with whom he agrees. He says, you know, he thinks this is going to be a lot easier than it is. When you enter the game late, at the, I think it was the 10th debate. You haven't debated in 11 years, as John King said to us the other day. It's not nothing. And I think no, it proved that it's not as nothing. smart as Bloomberg may be, I mean, these people he was totally not ready for prime gotten, time. A lot of them have gotten better and better and better naturally because they've been doing it so much. I mean, when you're constantly having to ask, answer reporters' questions and members of the public at these town halls and we have to go out and campaign in a retail kind of way, you got to be good on your feet. I mean, uh, Bloomberg, like I said, I, I, I thought he'd be better because he did have to debate when he was the mayor of New York, but he's, uh, he's off his game. You know John from Gardner, he's uh, one of our emailers who spent his career in the corrections, uh, working for the state in corrections. He just emailed. He not said, as an inmate. Uh, he was not an inmate. Okay. No, he was in the in the uh, uh, correction side of thing. Correction yeah. side of thing. That's yeah. right. He says, "I've seen beatdowns in prison that pale in comparison <laughs> to last night." <laughs> so there you go. It was very much a fisticuffs kind of situation, but I loved it. I mean, I, you don't want to bore people to tears when they turn on. First this. caller said it. it was sort of a no holds barred. I guess no everybody's barred. thinking the third thing, the caucus is Saturday. Yeah, and then we move right to South Carolina, and then we're two weeks away your from last Super Tuesday. Chance, exactly. Right, you either perform in, in in Nevada or South Carolina, or maybe just Nevada, or you're done. Nick from Brighton, thank you for calling. Hi, Nick. Hey there. Um, so one thing that I really did appreciate was 
Bloomberg not being able to let the kind of socialist boogeyman terminology stick on Sanders. I think mm-hmm. he defended himself pretty well. Um, but I also think it kind of speaks to what people in my generation being a millennial like about Sanders is that he doesn't really pander in that way. No, he doesn't. Um, he's very open about what he is, what he believes in. And it's kind of frustrating to see people kind of stand up for people like Bloomberg using terminology like socialism is bad when so many programs that they like and don't yep, want to exactly. see are just socialist in general. Well, well Nick, can I um, add to what your, your thought? Uh, I think it is totally fine and fair game to say socialism is not good for America. And then you get responses. What Bloomberg did that I thought was really low rent and he knows better because he's smarter and uh, Sanders called him out was when he, he, he said essentially that he was embracing communism. And I think Bloomberg is probably smart enough to know the difference between communism and socialism. But communism is a far scarier word. And he used it. And to the credit of Sanders, he didn't miss a beat. He shot right back at him. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, Nick, the more I see of Sanders, I mean, the more I question the conventional wisdom, which is that he can't win, that he's too far to the left. I mean, a lot of people are very upset about Medicare for all. They're wanting to keep their own insurance and stuff. But when you look at somebody like Bloomberg further, I mean, he's for years wanted to cut Social Security, Mm -hmm. compare the uh, AARP to the NRA. The AARP is their retirement group. And I know they're kind of tough on, we've had our run-ins with the AARP. They're not crazy about us for other reasons. For driver's licenses. But, you know, he's got some very, very conservative um, um, positions. And Sanders just gets up there. He says he says the same thing over and well, over like and Nick over said, again. He is who he is. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't play and he's with anything. Touching, you know, young people who are in this economic bind and working class people who are struggling. So I don't know. Maybe maybe he could pull it off. I Nick, don't know. thanks for the call. Eight seven seven. It looks like zero one eighty nine seven. I mean, if, if something doesn't happen, it looks like Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee. Well, it? except you know, yesterday I'm going to totally change gears. Yesterday I said how much I couldn't stand. This absurd talk about a brokered convention so far in advance. But you heard Chuck Todd's question last night mm-hmm. about will you support uh, the person who has the most uh, delegates, even if they don't have a majority going in? And obviously, the only one who said yes is the guy who's probably going to have the most delegates, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> but, you know, because of proportionality in the new Democrat, fairly new Democratic rules, and it's not winner take all anymore, it does, if everybody stays in, which it appears most of them are going to do, uh, there is an increasing likelihood, so I take back what I said yesterday, that there will not be a first ballot winner. And if there's not a first ballot winner, that means superdelegates who are the anathema to Sanders people because of how Clinton used them. That could split the party, the Democratic Party, in ways that are unhealable, but it's putting the cart before the horse. Okay, we are talking about last night's debate, asking you if this is the one that made a difference. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about last night's debate from Bernie Sanders' stents and sensibility to trivia night with Amy Klobuchar <laughs> to Bloomberg learning the hard way. You can buy your way on stage, but not into winning performance. 877-301-8970. By the way, two updates. The sentencing of Roger Stone is proceeding as we uh, 
we are on the air. We'll bring it to you the second. Obviously, it's a federal courthouse, so there are no cameras in the courtroom, unfortunately, as soon as there is a resolution. And also, I want to get back to what I said about how much this debate performance will benefit Elizabeth Warren. The bad news for her is, according to National Public Radio, 75,000 people in Nevada have already early voted, which means they're not affected by the performance. And why that's troubling, unless there is huge turnout, is only 84,000 people caucused at all in 2016, only 118,000 in 2008. So it appears, if all these numbers are right, that a significant chunk of Democratic caucus goers have uh, already uh, voted. And again, we're going to talk to Ayanna Presley, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who's a chief surrogate, one of the co-chairs of Warren's campaign in the one o'clock hour. This is from Maureen from Hingham. She says, I found Pete's no-shave look distracting, very unimportant. I know there it is, though. And then she said, I don't think uh, Bloomberg was worried about his first debate performance. He earned his place on stage the same way he'll continue to earn support with his TV ads and mass mailings. And that's a very good point. Dan says... (laughs) Two old Jewish guys arguing about heart conditions. Oy vey. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. It was pretty good. But you know something else? that, that it, When you hear about this increasing anti-Semitism all around the country and these, these terrible attacks on uh, synagogues and people mm-hmm. having to be worried about security, it is encouraging that there's been so little talk about point. Sanders and Bloomberg point. being Jewish. Because if Sanders or Bloomberg... W- you know, wins the nomination, wins it. That'd be the first Jewish president ever, right? Oh, it's a it's a really good point, Brendan. In a car, you've been patient too. Thanks so much. What's up? Hey, Jim and Marjorie, has anyone checked on Mike Bloomberg today? Is he okay? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to you on know. that. What else, Brendan? <laughs> uh, well, just every time he got pummeled by Elizabeth Warren, I just kept seeing dollar signs—a new mail or a new ad he's going to have to air to make up for it, but. Um, you know, look, I, I think in all seriousness, uh, I was horrified by last night's Why? Um, I think I think America deserves better. Um, you know, we've really just completely trumps our political discourse on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and it's extremely disappointing to see. You know, this isn't the NFL. Uh, this isn't uh, keeping up with the Kardashians. This is about our country and our country's future, my kids' future. Uh, and that's not what they were talking about last night. Well, and, Brendan, uh, can I... Let me disagree with you to Somebody a degree. Somebody called it and then WrestleMania get, in the well, emails. Well, get your response. One, I think there have been 10 debates. Well, whatever there have been, I would argue that the first nine have been pretty substantive and pretty fireworks-free. And I agree, there were a lot of theatrics last night, a lot of low-rent stuff. But most of the low-rent attacks, or whatever you'd call them, Brendan, were on the merits. I mean, for example, the Buttigieg-Klobuchar thing, which got really nasty, was him questioning whether or not she was capable of doing this job when she was on the committee, according to him, that oversees trade stuff, and not only didn't know the name of the Mexican president, which she said was just a mistake, but according to one of the questioners, she didn't really understand the policy. So, you know, again, it was vicious, but on the merits, no? Certainly on the merits, but I just don't think that's what the average American wants to hear. They want to hear how their life's going to get better. And that's just not what anybody's talking about right now. Well, you know, uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it does get – I think they were, but maybe it did get obscured by the – 
vitriol. Brendan, thanks for your perspective. We appreciate it. Laverne says she's so done with Amy telling me how great she is because her numbers went up. So done with Bernie writing the damn bill. So done with Elizabeth <laughs> being scolding night, professor. But she says we complain, we complain it's boring when the Dems discuss substance, substance, but you like it when they are completely self-obsessed and fighting. I must admit, I did like a, the fire last night. Uh, rather than just the the, the, so the, the calmness, because, but you know, I'm sorry. I mean, they're down to the wire. They, they have put their life and soul and millions and millions of dollars of this, and they've, uh, you know, running around the country, and it's all down to the next couple of days. You know that that person who just wrote uh, critically of you know what did she say or he say the scolding professor. Yeah, I, I was on Twitter watching a lot of the comments last night, and I I hate to sound like so many people who've said it before, but it's true. Uh, if a man. Had had the exact same performance Elizabeth Warren had last night. Nobody would oh be saying God. it was this scolding yeah, the scolding male professor. The se- what, you know, what, woman is not. What? what is Bernie? Well, that's a great point. He's yelling at us all the time. But he wasn't as effective as her <laughs> last night. Even though he was, I thought he was good last night. He, again, your point, the point you made earlier, and I think the uh, the man that called, I can't remember his name, who's a Bernie supporter. It he is what he is. He doesn't he try to sugarcoat anything. The nope. only thing I have to say is really disappointing. To me, as an American citizen, not as a Bernie supporter, is this when you've had a heart attack and you're 78 years old Mm -hmm. and you've committed to release all your medical stuff, to say the three letters is enough. It's not enough. I mean, if there's nothing to hide, it's sort of how I felt about Hillary Clinton and the Goldman Sachs speeches. Uh, If there's nothing to hide and it's something is important, and I would argue your health is much more important than, than the speeches. You have an obligation to be 100% transparent, and I don't think he is being, but I don't think the question is going away either. Okay, let's go to uh, Bill on 128. Hi, Bill. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Margie. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Hey. So I think I think Elizabeth Warren, unfortunately, she doesn't have a pathway to the end here, but, boy, what a great performance last night. Yeah. I it's fabulous. Um, you know, the thing my thought is about this, though, real quick, I think the majority of the thoughts and skills and, and philosophies of all of the people on stage are the same. So they have to really get into some kind of thing that they differ on. That's why the Buttigieg and, and the Klobuchar thing happened. And, and Elizabeth Warren decided she was going to go after Bloomberg because he was the easiest target and elevate herself. But here's my concern about all of it. How many people do you think watch it? I'm sure there's, there's information out there that watched this debate last night but how many people are going to see the ads that Michael Bloomberg put on and, and will put on over the next five to ten weeks? And I think the impact on uh, an individual, the ads they see over and over yeah. and over, kind of like the Stockholm Syndrome, they see this This last night is a blip on a small uh, period of time. They're going to forget about it. The news um, uh, is going to be about everything else for the next five to ten weeks. But Bloomberg, every few hours, is going to have an ad in their local TV and radio station. Every few minutes. And that's what they're going to remember. And he's going to buy the, he's going to buy the nomination because it is going to go to the uh, convention, and they're going to make the decision there. But can I just say one thing about that? Sure. I think, and I know that there's a difference of opinion here. But I think when you're a member of a party, you should have the right to vote for that party's nominee. When you're not a member of the party, I think it's really bad when they allow unenrolled people to just join the party and affect how that party is represented. And I think if we change the laws, we'll have a much wider variety of parties and opinions, and we'll have more candidates to select from. Right now, it's just that two-party system because 
we allow unenrolled to join either party basically right up until that well, primary. Well, but it's state by state. As you know, I'm not quarreling with your underlying argument, Bill. As you know, it's not every state. It depends on what the state law is and whether they allow it. But a lot of people feel exactly as, as you do. Bill, thank you for your uh, call. By the way, he makes a very good point. Uh, far fewer people saw the debate than those who will see Bloomberg ads over the next 24, 48, 96 hours. However, there's a lot of coverage, I think, uh, uh, of last night. Even if you didn't watch the debate, it's all over the place now. Donald Trump, as you said, is I don't know if you said this on air, you didn't, is tweeting that Bloomberg yeah. had the worst debate performance in the history of the world, <laughs> which obviously means he's and nervous he about Bloomberg. Mini Mike. Mini Mike, it says. So I think it's a lie for a while. So even if you didn't watch it, there's a lot of play. But he's also right that the news cycle changes so dramatically so quickly with Trump that Bloomberg may survive this better than than he thought. Uh, uh, Sarah let's go. in Boston. Thank yep. you for calling, Sarah. Hi. I'm a little – thanks for taking my call. I'm a little perplexed by the uh, heart attack concern and, and worry and obsession because Eisenhower had several heart attacks in office and survived at a time when cardiology was not – yeah. the greatest. Um, and uh, I think uh, we're sort of being uninformed about exactly what happened. The man was out of the hospital in two days. Sarah, can I interrupt so. you to say I, I could not respectfully disagree with you more. He is 78 years old. He had a heart attack. He may be 100% fine. And if he's 100% fine, let's see the medical records to determine that. I mean, he's not a kid. Uh, uh, and so, again, you may be right that with modern technology, he got out of the hospital. Obviously, his energy quotient is off the charts. He's incredible. But uh, uh, I would worry about it with anybody. I worry the president of the United States is 73 and is in the worst shape of virtually any 73-year-old man I've ever seen. I would like something other than these phony letters from his doctors about what's going on with the guy who's in the Oval Office. So uh, I hear you. Uh, uh, and this is not an anti-Bernie comment at all. It's just I think we're entitled to transparency, particularly from a guy who preaches transparency. But, Sarah, thanks for the call. Jim in Burlington, you're next on Boston Public Radio. We have a minute. Take it away. Yeah. Yeah, hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hi. Hi. Hi, this is your genealogist. Oh, Oh, Jim, how are you? Great to hear from you. Brilliant stuff on both of us. Thanks. We learned a lot. But go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, I hope dear Jared's happy. Uh, He is. I did. Yeah, I watched the full debate last night, and I am a Bloomberg supporter. Mm-hmm. And what I did notice from your prior comment was that Bloomberg, how he's feeling today. And my point would be that his right, his left arm must be hurting because he was in the classroom with his hand up during the whole debate. And you haven't talked about the moderators, how they dealt with that, I guess you would say, a, a rule of conduct, that he had his hand up. They ignored him. Constantly because of Mrs. Warren kept talking before she was acknowledged. Now, I think that was a positive for Bloomberg. You know, they're sure there is a lot of the things he has to deal with. And he's new in the debate process. And uh, but however, I think she was she got carried too far away. She was so hungry. She was like a, an animal in a cage where a steak was thrown in. And Bloomberg was a steak and she was go at it. We got to go, Jim, only because we're out of time and Charlie Senate's coming up. We hear hear you. Having said that, in the prior debate, Elizabeth Warren wasn't called on a lot. And I think she decided last night, uh, I can't let that happen. 
and you got to sadly moderator. I thought they did a pretty good job last night. Actually, you got to mm. force your way into the debate, uh, regardless of who you are. An email I just sent me a link to the BuzzFeed News, the best What's tweets up? about the drama, the Democratic debate. I won't have time for all of them, but Ali said this is the red wedding of debates. <laughs> <laughs> Game of Thrones for those who missed Game of it. Thrones. Yeah. And somebody else said, I've not been this stressed since I saw Uncut Gems. Anyway, you can check it out yourself. You don't have time for that because Charlie Sennett is coming up to talk about international stuff. He is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie. And the presidential race in Afghanistan is the only thing that makes the Iowa caucuses look like an electoral success. After delayed results and a five-month dispute over the vote, President Ashraf Ghani has won a second term, or has he? His leading opponent, Abdul Abdullah, has also claimed victory and says he'll form a government of his own. Join us to talk about how this could compromise the U.S. Taliban possible peace deal, if the next president of the United States should know who the president of Mexico is, and other international headlines is Charlie Senate. Charlie's news analyst here at GBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Charlie, good to see you. Good to see you. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Charlie. Great to see you. Uh, well, considering the fact that we are in this very delicate situa- situation in Afghanistan, it was really rather odd uh, that there was not a word about Afghanistan last night. In fact, we're going to play a clip from last night's debate uh, about the only real discussion of uh, international affairs. Moderator uh, Vanessa Hawk of Telemundo uh, uh, returned to a Klobuchar gaffe from last week when the senator forgot the name of the president of Mexico. I said that I made an error. Um, I think having a president that maybe is humble and is able to admit that here and there maybe wouldn't be a bad thing. Mayor Buttigieg, if you could let me... response. If you could... Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't liken this to trivia. You're staking your candidacy on your Washington experience. You're on the committee that does trade. You're literally in uh, part of the committee that's overseeing these things and we're not able to speak to literally the first thing about the politics of the country you, to ourselves. Are you trying to say that I'm dumb or are you mocking me here, Pete? I'm I saying that you shouldn't trivialize I made an error. People sometimes forget names. Okay, that was that was among the many Vicious back and forth last night's debate, which but no, we just talked I said, about. I agree with but you, nothing else. No foreign policy. No foreign policy. Yeah. So, so what do you make of that? You know, it's it's distressing that there are so many important things happening in the world, whether you want to look at climate change and the chaos that's out there every day that our whole world has confronted in the United States receding leadership in that. I'd call that a foreign policy issue. That gets debated sometimes, but not much, not enough. I would say. We have unbelievable events unfolding in Afghanistan right now with a possible peace deal, with a chaos of an election inside Afghanistan that's really important to understand. No discussion of it. What's going to happen with Iraq? Very little discussion of it. What's going on with North Korea? What's going on with the Iran deal? It's it's distressing because you have one candidate who I think shines above the others on foreign policy, and that's Joe Biden. And Joe Biden has a lot of knowledge, he has a lot of perspective, and he has a lot to add. And, you know, it's as if he's not even on the stage. It's as if he has vanished. And it's it's sad to see all the fighting, all the divisions, all the pyrotechnics, 
and missing that substance of Joe Biden and the knowledge and the reason everyone originally thought he was the guy who could be well, Trump. Well, I, I think you shouldn't be so negative. I think he'll have plenty of free time to advise the next president. So I think <laughs> now, can we get back to this Afghanistan <laughs> thing? Really, truly. Before mean, we talk about the <laughs> Taliban, of course I don't know, and I'm of course getting right. sort of. Uh, uh, the potential Taliban-U.S. deal we'll get to in a second. But before we get to it, I'm embarrassed to say, well, I do know the names of the candidates. Uh, I don't know the impact of either Ghani or Abdullah winning on the possibility of a Taliban-U.S. deal. A good way to try to remember how to... How to understand this is to remember this is not the first time these two have right. been at odds over the results of an election. In 2014, they had a very similar clash, similar allegations of voter fraud. Voting fraud is is it is legion in Afghanistan. It happens in every election they've had. It's a very rural country. It's almost impossible to count every vote. There's a lot of shenanigans around voting. But if you remember, Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah had it out. And in 2014, John Kerry had to intervene and form a kind of working coalition government in which uh, I think it was it was Ashraf Ghani became president and then Abdullah Abdullah became uh, a, a kind of more honorary position, but a real chief executive position didn't really work well. They sat on opposite ends of the city sort of, you know, uh, staring at each other and uh, trying to outmaneuver each other, and it's always been uneasy. So this isn't a surprise. This isn't new. What's what's really uh, unsettling about it is that it's happening on the edge of what could be a historic peace agreement, not just historic in the sense of America's longest war in our history began in Afghanistan after 9-11, but for the country of Afghanistan, this is 40 years of war. And this is really talking about how do you bring an end to the fighting. So let me make sure I understand what is going on with this potential uh, peace agreement. We actually brought it up with uh, uh, Senator Markey and Congressman Kennedy the other night. We'll get to that, play a little sound from them in a minute. My understanding is uh, there's a tentative agreement, which the Taliban are saying will be announced later this month, that it's initiated by the seven-day so-called reduction in violence, which theoretically – inaugurates the drawdown by the United States from 13 to 8,000 troops. And if that goes well, then the discussion is, do we leave several thousand of those 8,000 down the line to be a counterterrorism force, or do we ultimately move down to zero? Is that a, 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 an accurate yeah, picture? That's, that's, so that's about as much as we know right now. I mean, the key thing is this is imminent. We're talking about the reduction of violence um, you know, set to begin as – sometime this week, like by the end of this week, right, tomorrow, Saturday, and going into next week. The biggest thing that's going to be difficult here is as you begin the drawdown of thousands of U.S. troops, how do you get the Taliban to sit down and directly negotiate with an Afghan government that's in complete disarray? What's the answer to that? I think that the disarray in the the post-election wrangling that's going on plays to the Taliban's favor. They can hold. They can just throw up their arms and say, "Look, this is a chaotic, corrupt government. We told you that from the beginning. We're now in power, and it's as if the Afghan government uh, has handed over a really important card to play at the negotiating table to the Taliban, which is they look they look more rational, they look more organized, and if they can actually get this reduction of violence, which is tantamount to a ceasefire, to hold." 
the Taliban is going to be in a position to put forward a lot of its a lot of what it wants from a future Afghanistan. You know, we can I just play the sound that I promised, yeah. and then we'll get to it because we did broach with uh, Congressman Kennedy and Senator Markey on Tuesday night. The whole notion is if Phase One works, this initial drawdown. Uh, and this reduction in violence, as it's called, and that's the term they're using, yep. should uh, the United States ultimately, not only in years, but soon draw down from that reduced 8,000 troop level to zero, first uh, Congressman Kennedy and then Senator Markey. We need to bring our troops home. We have been at All of them? As many of them as we possibly can to ensure the safety of our country. We bring yeah, them all you home? bring them home. All you home. bring them home all. as fast as we possibly can. I think that it is absolutely imperative that we remove troops, uh, that we try to resolve this issue, negotiate a resolution of it. But to completely remove the United States immediately, it could jeopardize 50% of their population. Women in that country were living in terror when the Taliban had total control. We've talked about that issue a lot with you. I mean, uh, Congressman Kennedy seems to be moving in the direction of a complete withdrawal in a reasonable time frame, as you hear Senator Markey a little bit more cautious on that. What's your sense of what happens if we go down to zero? I mean, I, I appreciate Markey's caution, and I think it comes from many years of being part of a national debate on what is the future and the fate of Afghanistan. The one thing in Afghanistan that I think the United States can really hold its head high about in our time there is that there are now women who go to school, girls go to school and become women who go into community colleges and who take jobs in the workplace. And we, I think, have uh, liberated uh, half of the population to play an active role in the future of Afghanistan. That is something that, that... Afghans I know and the Afghans who are part of the future of the country really appreciate. It is a rural country. It's a very conservative country religiously. And there are many who align with the Taliban who who don't accept these changes that are going on. But I think we've been at it for 20 years almost. And I think there's a momentum in that direction. I don't think we should rush out of there. I really believe Markey's put his finger on something that I think the analysts who really know Afghanistan would agree we have to have a very measured pullback and a very measured support for the gains well, we've made. Well, to get yeah. back to what you were saying at the yeah. beginning about the Afghan election confusion and disarray yeah. helping yeah. the Taliban, does the Taliban still want to be put its foot on the neck of the women there? I mean, what, what are they? Or yeah, they, they do. do. I mean, the Taliban's interpretation of the Quran is a very strict one. There, there's just no hiding from that. Yeah. They are going to reimpose uh, uh, separate schools for sure. That's very much accepted by almost every Afghan person that girls and boys would be taught in different schools. But now they're talking about, like, how do you segregate public spaces, the marketplace, the streets? the You know, you really could see a slow walk back to the very rigid, very conservative interpretation of the Quran that people lived under with the Taliban with with great frustration. And they're really, I was there when the United States landed in Afghanistan. There really was a sense of liberation. There really were young men who finally shaved their beards. There really were women who for the first time went out without the chador and wore just the headscarf, you know, still respectful, but 
an expression of freedom for them. These are real things that have happened in our time in Afghanistan, and the Taliban wants to turn back the clock. One, one other thing, but in addition to your experience, which we've learned a lot from, the film that uh, your colleague Beth Murphy made a oh, couple of years yeah. ago yeah. with a local woman, Razia John, and the right. girls' school that she created was one of the most powerful things I have ever seen. People should check it out. Thanks, uh, it, Jim. It was it's just it's, so it really, beautiful. Beth's work is always extraordinary. The film is called What Tomorrow Brings, right, 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 right. which is this famous, beautiful, powerful quote, chilling quote from Razia, yeah, who's, who, who, who is from Massachusetts, uh, an Afghan-American who was so frustrated by the way Americans saw her native country after 9-11 that she wanted to build, do something to engage with Afghanistan. She built this amazing girls' school. The thing that, that will Beth always stay followed. with me, and I've said this to you and Beth, and then we will move on, is yeah. that in one of the opening scenes, the fathers of these girls right. will not even make eye contact with Razia John when she's right. talking about how the girls... And in some of the final scenes, they're leaning forward, engaging <laughs> with her about what's the best right. route for education for their young daughter. Is so I love it beautiful. when the when the Taliban guy pulls up to drop off his kid, just like all of us. Yeah. Do when you're dropping off <laughs> yeah. your kid at school and he's going too fast and she's yelling at no, him. That is great. I, We're talking yeah. to Charlie Senate. Beautiful moments, but the the quote was: She's asked, Razia is asked, "What do you think will happen to your school? What will happen to women in this country if the Taliban come back?" comes back and her answer is no one knows what tomorrow brings and that is the future of afghanistan that is the fate that's the hinge of history right now in afghanistan so uh, charlie senate uh, let's talk about the president's uh, appointing uh the guy best known as a twitter warrior with no intelligence experience to be the chief guy on top of the intelligence agencies in the country. This is a repeated pattern with the president. He's going to make him the acting head, so he doesn't have to go before the Senate for confirmation. But it seems to be... Wouldn't even the Republicans object to that, even if they're okay with a Trump loyalist? The fact that he's bypassing again... Well, our staff member, Arjun, got the history of this guy, spokesman for John Bolton at the U.N. Uh, He was Republican. His name is Grinnell, by the way. uh, Grinnell was a Richard Republican Grinnell. operative, com- commentator, national security aide, spokesperson for multiple high-level Republicans, Mitt Romney, John Bolton, communications guy. I mean, this is a f- further effort to control these this another agency. Yeah. Well, also, this is the third director of national intelligence in the Trump administration. Right. Um, you know, we have we have absolute chaos and it's it's to me it is incoherent what is america's foreign policy and what is our guiding principle around national security i i don't know and i i read a lot and i try to really understand this and it's all over the map and it changes every week tweet by tweet we are brought new policies that don't add up to a coherent foreign policy or or a, a coherent policy towards national intelligence and remember this guy, Richard Grinnell, who's known as a wild partisan, who's quite unhinged, has never worked in a security agency. He's never headed a large company even where you might deal with, if you were the head of, if you were a CEO of a very large multinational company, you would have dealt with security. You would have dealt with some of these issues. He has none of that experience, and he will be the man responsible for 17 intelligence agencies in the United States of America, including the security of our elections, which are coming up and have grave, really grave concerns about having our security breached in our own elections. You know, if he can do this 
do you want to perform a heart transplant this afternoon, Marjorie, after the, the show? I mean, it is so if – if the Republicans do not rise up – and no, again, Trump won up. the election. Uh, don't send me an email about three million votes, please. I can't take it anymore. He's the president of the United States. He can pick who he wants, but to nominate who he wants, he can't get who he wants. The Senate should stand up and say, you can pick a, a – uh, and you should pick someone who aligns with your views, but somebody – who has credentials to do one of right. the most important jobs in the damn administration. And Jim, it's another... disgraceful. It's disgraceful. I, it's, it's, I agree. It's, Jared Kushner, he's been doing every job going since he started. He's got no credentials. Right, with all that anything. foreign experience. Well, yeah. foreign yeah. experience. But no, I think the other thing that's really um, interesting and, and, and problematic around Grinnell's appointment is this is yet another acting. Right. Yeah, Marjorie said that. Yeah, yeah, it's acting. unbelievable. Because so, he the, didn't get around em- the Senate that way. But, I know, but... I completely agree. It's just like, how much can this whole administration be acting foreign policy and acting intelligence? It's, it's going to be, um, it's it's going to be an issue that I hope voters, I hope listeners, I hope people who listen to this program really think about what does it mean when you have an incoherent foreign policy? How does the world view us? And I think that's that's something we've we've seen in Munich. We've been watching. Um, sort of how the world is dealing with the fact that the Democrats in this country seem in disarray. There's, you know, for those who are betting in Europe, they're betting on a, on a Trump, Trump re-election. Win. I know. And they're, they're, and they're despondent that, because they wonder, what does this mean for European leaders? What does it mean I, for NATO? Well, can I, I bring think, up they one? think they mean, th- means the end of the American democracy is what they seem to be thinking. Well, that's what they're saying. Can we, can we, uh, well, yes, sorry. Can we, can we turn to one of the, we only have a couple sure. of minutes left. Yep. I, I was watching CNN over the weekend. I don't know if this is a friend. He's Arwa Damon, who is this reporter yeah, for CNN, amazing reporter. who is the only Western reporter in Syria, which to oh, begin with, a heartbreaking story. she does this piece about with the, the 900,000 Syrians who in one month are fleeing their homes, mostly women and kids on the border with Turkey uh, uh, because of the assaults from their own, go- their own government. I use the term as loosely as with Russian mm-hmm. help. It is one of the most – if you haven't seen it, Google it. Amongst the most painful seven to ten minutes, uh, a baby freezing to death in the middle of the night as they're fleeing. A young child, a father, walks out of the picture frame because he's crying. He can't deal with it. A brother who is a resistor is murdered in prison. They send him a picture. It is so painful. The cold, night after night. Uh, the, yeah. uh, the, question, no tents, the only no question nothing. I have is, is anybody helping these – Refugees, or is there are just too many things and, going on? And also, what happens to these if nine? We were, if we were not so hostile to refugees right now, would we would we would normally we, be doing something? I sure would like to think we would be one of the countries that would do a lot more than we are doing, and that would do a lot to take people in. We that's who America is, right? That's literally what it says on the Statue of Liberty. I, I what a moment for us as a country to recognize who we are and try to help. Uh, in a desperate situation. You know, Jim, you pointed out the one uh, child who who died from exposure. There are at least a dozen who've died from exposure in the last week. Yeah, they froze to death, this essentially. Is, this is about, this is basically about Idlib province, the last uh, Syrian province under rebel control. And this is about the government of Bashar al-Assad finally sweeping the final remnants out, getting rid of all the families that would be connected to the Syrian rebels. And this nine hundred thousand in a month. This is complicated, but you guys have listeners who really follow these issues, so they can get their arms around this. This is about Russia just 
having its influence inside of Syria and winning right now. This is about Iran and Russia winning in the Middle East. The United States is losing. And, and most importantly, nearly a million people who are in the freezing cold and displaced by this are the biggest losers of this war. War is always... The losers are always the civilians. But, but in this no... case, what are we as a country doing? Well, well Turkey's already taken three million refugees. Well, what is the West? Is the whole, not just us. What is the West? Well, the doing? UN. The UN. What the can UN, UN works do? while the UN is on the border with enormous refugee camps. I've been in the refugee camps on the borders in Jordan, in Lebanon, uh, and there are huge camps in Turkey. This is this is a um, this is a global migration crisis. Syria is the most violent and, I don't know, just dramatic chapter of this global migration of millions of people around the world being displaced by war, by climate change. And there is no more desperate situation than this. And I agree with you, Jim. The reporting that was done on CNN was extraordinary. She's also, amazing. Carlotta Gall. From Boston, by the way. She grew, oh, really? She's from Boston. That. I just checked that out the other day. I did not chance. know yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, Carlotta Gall for the New York Times has a piece that's also extraordinary um, on the border in Turkey, just sort of getting getting the stories of these human beings fleeing for their lives in a terrible war where the United States has receded. And we've allowed, I, I think we've allowed Russia and Iran to come in and fill a vacuum. We have a, we have a president with an incoherent foreign policy that is acting foreign policy, not real foreign policy. And if voters care out there and you really care about what's happening in the world, you've got to think about whether you, whether you agree or disagree with the president. Um, I just want something that is coherent, that makes sense, and that has our values. Charlie, thanks. Charlie, it's good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Charlie Sennett joins us every week. He's a news analyst here at WGBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Up next, we'll talk to Andrea Cabral about what she thinks about Amy Klobuchar and Mike Bloomberg and whether what they did at last night's debate defending their criminal justice practices worked. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we'll talk to Andrew Cabral about this morning's sentencing of Roger Stone. Then it's Howard Bryant. Howard spent his career surrounded by sports as a journalist for ESPN. He's closely followed the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, but in his new book, Full Dissidence, Tales from an Uneven Playing Field, Bryant steps off the field to examine how racism has become a part of our American institutions, as I said, not just in the sports industry. So don't just make the tea cheaper, make it free. That's what Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley recently told a crowd at Howard University after asking why some places are still, quote, locking up kids for evading fares, unquote. We talked to Pressley about her calls for free public transit, how Massachusetts can be better about supporting minority-owned businesses, and her candidates, Elizabeth Warren's path to victory. That's next on Boston Public Radio here on 89.7 WGBH. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, uh, Marjorie. And by the way, if you're wondering, the uh, sentencing of Roger Stone is still going on as we speak. Any moment, uh, the judge will uh, render her decision. Join us online first, though, for this week's edition of Law & Order. Actually, I hope the sentencing comes down while we're talking to her. Is Andrea Cabral. Andrea is the CEO of Ascend and former Suffolk County Sheriff and former Secretary of Public Safety for Massachusetts. Hi there, Andrea. 
How are you? Good. Hey, uh, great to talk to you, Andrew. We want to get to some law, law, seg- law and order segments from last night's debate with you in a second. But first, I want to talk to you about the sentencing of Roger Stone today. As uh, most people know by now, that uh, four prosecutors that were, worked on the case were so upset they um, resigned from the case. One of them resigned from the Justice Department. We've had more than 2,000 former federal uh, prosecutors, people that work for the Justice Department, saying that Attorney General Barr should resign for his interference in the case. The president wants his friend, Roger Stone, to get a lesser sentence, and we're waiting to see uh, what the judge does, if she goes with the recommendation of seven to nine for the prosecutors or not. What do you think? Well, I think, you know, we, from what we know about uh, Judge Amy Berman-Jackson, um, you know, she she is, she seems to be uh, a wonderful judge, and uh, she will sentence, I believe she will sentence Roger Stone accordingly. She's had... Um, and I use the term facetiously, the luxury of, uh, you know, presiding over this entire trial, and she has seen his behavior. Um, She, you know, keep in mind that when you're deciding about sentencing, uh, contrition and remorse uh, is usually a factor in this. Roger has shown neither contrition nor remorse for his crimes. Remember that when the case was pending, she uh, had admonished him. He was under a gag order and continued to make comments about the process on social media, and at one point uh, said something on social media that was um, well interpreted to be a threat toward the judge. Uh, she, she refrained from hauling him into custody based on his behavior during the pendency of the trial, but now he is convicted, and he is convicted of seven counts, and he has shown no remorse and no contrition, and she is well aware that before it was interfered with and corrected, the Department of Justice thought an appropriate sentence um, of seven to nine years uh, was would be it would be best for him. So she she will take all of that into consideration. Judges do have some discretion, even though there are federal guidelines. But my suspicion is that uh, Roger Stone isn't going home today. Uh, by the way, then his if you didn't say this, his lawyers have asked for uh, no. Uh, jail sentence. And I think the betting odds in Las Vegas is that DeBerman Jackson is going to sentence him to exactly what the original prosecutors uh, urged her to, seven and nine. Well, that's what I'm... I mean, if you go online, it's all speculation because no one knows that that might uh, send a message, even though theoretically judges are not in the message sending a business. Well, she said she was concerned in terms of shortness of sentence with the fact that he had threatened a witness. Witness tramp, yeah. And that, that witness right. gave an interview to the New York Times during the week and, and said he indeed uh, was scared, not that Roger Stone was necessarily going to come after him, but one of his associates would come after him or his dog. So, uh, uh, Andrea Cabral, you know, you're a pretty good lawyer, but I, I'm guessing you did not know that the president of the United States was the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. Is that... <laughs> Is that correct? That, yes, that's because no one knows that. That is something that exists, I think, uh, in his mind. Um, but it, it, it is staggering how um, regularly and substantively he displays um, his ignorance of basic functions of the three branches of government, of basic constitutional principles, of common sense, quite frankly, so, you know, and the fact that he, even in saying it, he said, I guess I am. He did say that. Yeah, and, he did. Yeah. 
Yeah. In other words, I was dreaming and I, I dreamt this. And so I woke up and now I think it's a reality. It's just, it is so frightening. The entire, the entire way that he deals with um, matters of great solemnity and import um, in this sort of cavalier, I don't really know what I'm talking about way, uh, and just, and gets away with it. Is, that's also astonishing, but it's really very frightening. What do you think is the future uh, in this administration of, of Bill Barr? I mean, I, I go back and forth every day. I mean, there are two interpretations that I make. One, that this is all totally orchestrated because, you know, the, instead of just talking to the president and resolving it, uh, Barr goes on ABC, what, a week ago and says, uh, the uh, tweets make it impossible for me to do my job. And what's the response to that? More tweets from the president, more tweets about the judge from the president. Then this comment about being the chief law enforcement officer, and for those who don't know, the attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer. That leads me to conclude that unless the attorney general has virtually no pride, uh, this is all an orchestrated kind of thing, and Barr's fine with it, and he and Trump have sort of worked this thing out. But on the other hand, 2,000 former Justice Department employees, not all, as Marjorie said, not all uh, Democrats, I should say, this rare emergency conference called by the Federal Judges Association, by the way, convened by the head of the group who was appointed by George Bush, not by some horrible uh, Democrat, as uh, uh, accusers might suggest. What? How does this end up? Are we about to have a new attorney general or no? Well, I, I would say, first of all, the... Uh, condemnation of the DOJ has been um, widespread and deeply bipartisan. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're hearing from pretty much everybody who's, who's ever worked in the place um, and some folks that are um, more contemporaneously involved with the DOJ. And because of, because this level of corruption and interference is completely unprecedented. But to your point about whether or not it's an orchestrated thing, um, or it's real. I did read one account, I believe, in the Washington Post that said that Barr had uh, discussed it. Yeah, I read that. Well, discussed the tweets with, yeah. with uh, Trump personally, and that didn't work, and that's why uh, he said it on television. <clears throat> I don't exactly know what to think either, but I will say this. The fact that everything is a lie, that, that no one, we are at a stage in this country where nothing that comes out of the White House or comes out of the mouth of anybody who works for that White House can be trusted is really the thing that people should focus on. Part of the reason that you, you're not sure what to believe is because everything is a lie. Trump lies and Barr lies. And so there's no trust and there's no confidence. And that's really the damage that is being done is that and, and it's, it's being, it's being you know, wreaked upon us intentionally is so that you can never trust Anything that is said, if you don't know what truth is, then you can't damn a lie. And, Talk, and I think that's sorry. the part that's so, that's so bad about this. We're talking to Andrew Cabral. Andrew, uh, let's move on for some of the president's pardons. Uh, people may know that he uh, pardoned uh, former uh, Illinois Governor Blagdanovich, who w- was trying to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat after uh, he was elected. Obama was elected president, and he was also Blagdanovich was also a a uh, uh, he appeared on the Celebrity Apprentice show of the president. The president said he was a nice guy. He also uh, pardoned Michael Milken. People may remember that his Wall Street dealings.
feelings contributed to the collapse of the savings and no- loan industry. So that was sort of a big deal. Milken has kind of turned himself around somewhat. In his he life. runs that organization that Kerry Healy, former lieutenant governor, is yeah. now running about trying to bring all parties together. Yeah, he, he, so he's done a, a very good job post his uh, post his time in jail. He also pardoned uh, Bernie Carrick, who pleaded guilty to tax fraud and lying to the government. He used to be the head of the police department in 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 uh, New York City. The- Can I add one more to the list? Yep. Who no one, I mean, it's always mentioned in a story, but way down, this guy Pogue, who I'd never heard of, who was a tax cheat, who uh, coincidentally his son and daughter-in-law donated $200,000 late last year to whatever it's called, the Trump Victory Fund or uh, some such thing. Yeah, and the former owner of the San Francisco 49ers, Edward D. Bartolo Jr. But anyway, there seems to be a, you know, there's... This is not like Alice Marie Johnson, the 63-year-old African-American woman who spent, you know, I think 20-some years in jail for a nonviolent drug conviction. A lot of these guys are very rich and powerful and and connected. So I suppose that isn't a surprise. I don't know. Yeah, but again, you know, we're at the point now saying that it's not a surprise because his corruption and his abuse of power is so naked and blatant and out in the open and, you know, done with a sort of you know, what are you going to do about it flourish? And that's, that's yet another danger is that, you know, anybody else, if he, if he wasn't the president, you know, cloaked in the um, power of the executive, anybody else would be hauled off in handcuffs ages ago. Well, you know, um, we, we should point out. This is literally a rogues gallery. I mean, this is, when you say rogues, we use that term all the time. This is literally a rogues gallery that he is very deliberately, very intentionally pardoning so as to diminish the crimes that they've committed yep. or the way the executive branch views those crimes because he is guilty of that and more. You know, usually I should have pointed out before, uh, uh, previous presidents, I mean, there was the famous exception of that when Bill Clinton uh, pardoned Mark Rich, who was this head fund manager who was convicted of tax evasion, a bunch of crimes. He got Bill Clinton got a lot of criticism for for pardoning him. Uh, but hours gen- before he left office. Right. But generally speaking, like George W. Bush and Barack Obama, uh, the people that they pardoned um, were almost all people that had gone through this rigorous Justice Department procedure um, to say that they should have been uh, pardoned. And they, they were people that were convicted of these uh, nonviolent, low-level drug crimes, not people like this. Well, you know, part of what makes this even worse is the fact that there are probably hundreds of thousands of legitimate pardon petitions for people who fall right into that mm-hmm. category that are being ignored. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you have Rod Blagojevich on tape abusing his office yeah. and extorting yeah. somebody for money. And his sentence, it isn't just that he's, he's done his time and he's being pardoned. His sentence was commuted. He was released from jail. And as much as I disagree with the pardon of Mark Rich, it is singular. This is a group of people coming on the heels of his pardon of Joe Arpaio and Scooter Libby. Joe Arpaio, before he was ever even tried and convicted. Um, So it's just, I mean, it's astonishing the degree to which um, this president is being allowed to corrupt all systems so that, and, I, and I, I'll just go to my earlier point, so that no one can have confidence in any aspect of government or any norm. And it's so much easier to take things over and turn, turn a government, a democratic uh, 
a constitutional democracy into an authoritarian or fascist regime if no one believes in anything anymore. You know, one and of the, the you know, so sorry. I was just going to say there's the obvious wrongfulness of pardoning this particular group of people com- who committed these particular um, crimes, but the damage goes much deep, much much deeper in my view. You know, I'll make the same point about process that I naively made to Charlie Sennett a couple of minutes ago about yet another acting head of uh, the intelligence uh, apparatus for Donald Trump acting so that the Senate doesn't get to hold a confirmation hearing. And you would think that people who believe in process and the institution, including Republicans who support Donald Trump, would say uh, we might support your nominee, but you got to go through the traditional process. Same thing here. It's amazing. Well, it's not amazing, but it's troubling, I guess, that leaders in the Justice Department don't say, uh, of course, the president has the power to pardon and commute and grant clemency. But there is a traditional process that we would urge the president to engage in, not just to rely on uh, connections. You know, there's a story. I don't know if it's in The Washington Post and The New York Times about one of the guys who got a pardon calling Couric up on the phone. This is almost defies belief. Oh, yeah, tell this story. At 10 a.m. on the morning he was pardoned, saying, hey, I'm about to make a pitch to the president that he pardon you. Uh, can you get me a couple of recommendations for who will support your being pardoned? And I think by 1030, that's in 30 minutes, Couric calls back and says, I've got uh, Geraldo Rivera from Fox News, and I've got um, Peter King, who's a congressman, Republican congressman from New York. At 11.57 on the same – and by the way, Couric had no idea that there was about to be an action by the president. By 11.57, one hour and 57 minutes after the initial call uh, to Couric, he picks up his phone and the president of the United States is on the phone saying, by the way, I just pardoned you. I mean it's it's it, it's almost impo- – I had to read it twice because I couldn't <laughs> believe that was how it happened. Yeah. Uh, that's what I mean. I mean, it, the idea that he would even, uh, in, in addition to Carrick, you know, just sort of say to people, I rely on recommendations. I rely on what other people tell me about, uh, you know, who should, who should uh, um, be pardoned and who shouldn't. And he doesn't go through the process. He does not get uh, anything remotely like a recommendation from, uh, you know, uh, the actual uh, going through the process, get a recommendation from the pardon attorney who would weigh everything, by the way, and would come up with a fair recommendation is astonishing. I, I completely agree with you. I, 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 it, it just floors me. So we want to get your – again, we're waiting still for the uh, judges, the sentencing of Roger Stone, which, as we've said for more than an hour, could come any minute. But there were two pretty dramatic moments on the criminal justice front last night, one relating to Amy Klobuchar we'll get to in a minute, uh, the most obvious one around stop and frisk uh, with Bloomberg. Here's some of Bloomberg's response to a question about stop and frisk from Lester Holt from NBC. Holt had read read out much of Bloomberg's uh, publicized comment about throwing kids against the wall and frisking them and asked him what kind of language, what that kind of language says about how he views uh, people of color. Here it is. When we discovered, I discovered that we were doing many, many, too many stop and frisks, we cut 95 percent of it out. And I've sat down with a bunch of African-American clergy and business people to talk about this. I've talked to a number of kids who'd been stopped. 
and uh, I'm trying to I was trying to understand how we change our policies so we can keep the city safe because the crime rate did go from 650 50 percent down to 300. By the way, before I get your reaction to how impressed or not you were by that answer, am I not wrong when I say that the reason that, quote, we cut 95 percent of it out is because the judge ordered them to stop doing it? Am I, am I wrong about that or no? No, and- you're not. He, they, he was, they were mandated to stop this program because it was unconstitutional. And after throwing five uh, a million um, young men up against the wall, they found uh, weapons 1% of the time. Wait a second. You said five million. Did I mean, you... five, is it 5,000? I think it's 5,000. Yeah. Uh, Biden said five million last night. and We've integrated that. In, I mean, I, I think he misspoke. And I, I don't think it was five, uh, obviously not five million, but thousands, obviously. Let's, let's move on. Right. Um, we should also point out, too, that, that apparently uh, Mayor Bloomberg is not truthful about the New York, P- uh, New York PD's basically spying on uh, Muslim, Muslim mosques and yeah. restaurants and businesses. He claimed he had to have a reason. It turns out these people didn't have links to terrorism. He did it anyway. And one of the cases was 2007, which is obviously six years after 9-11. But I wanted to ask you, Andrew Gabral, about Amy Klobuchar, too. Uh, she was a prosecutor out in Minnesota, chief prosecutor, actually, uh, for their biggest county. And she didn't bring charges in more than two dozen cases in which people were killed by police officers. And one of them was this absolutely horrible case where a 44-year-old man unarmed at home in Minneapolis with his fiancée and three young kids when the police showed up uh, in response to a domestic violence call, put him in a chokehold, and he died. That was just one of these many cases. So this is not a great record, I don't think, either, is it? Um, no, I mean, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that she, that, uh, that, that she had, she sort of had that, um, had that history. I know that she's been criticized, um, for, I think her stridency when she was a prosecutor, um, about, uh, certain, um, you know, policies, uh, that she defended that were, that were considered to be, um, uh, you know, disproportionate or racist. Um, I was not aware of the number of uh, cases on uh, police violence. But um, if I could go back just for a second, because Jim had asked me my reaction to Bloomberg's comment um, about stop and frisk. And I thought, you know, when I first saw that, I thought to myself, if you substituted the words, the word Jews for black and Latino young men. That's a great point. In his quote, and that that... wouldn't it be immediately apparent to him that that was an horrific thing to say, that, that that was a deeply racist thing to say? And what you're struck by often with Bloomberg is a lack of empathy and a lack of ability to apply to the things that he cares about, the very ideas that he holds about others. And it's, it's, it's really sort of fascinating because his, his quote is actually, you know, you could, you could Xerox a copy of the description of the people who commit crimes and murders in New York, and it would be these young black and Latino men. So that's basically why we were doing stop and frisk, because you have to stop all of them because they all fit the same description. And it was just this sort of so nakedly uh, racist uh, that I, I thought to myself, to not think for a second that if you substituted any group that you belong to or care about for black and Latino men, the racism of that would, would grab you by the throat. But apparently he doesn't do that. 
Can we? So now, that you, was my reaction to his comment. You wanted to go back to Bloomberg. I want to go back to Klobuchar for a second. And if either, if I hope we don't have sound from it. And if I'm getting this at all wrong, please correct me, either of you, both of you. Uh, her response in part, and by the way, it seems she was almost as if she was taken totally by surprise by the question. This is Amy Klobuchar, and it seems to me a pretty obvious question. She goes on to say, in retrospect, I think she said, about the more than 24 cases in which people were killed in encounters with police where there were no charges, that if she had it to do all over again, she wouldn't have relied on the grand jury. The prosecutor, meaning her in Hennepin County, she would have made the decision unilaterally. And while I was nodding in agreement saying that's a, a fine point, you say to yourself, did that not occur to her after six cases where people were killed in encounters right. with police or after 12 right. or 15 or 20 and it's only now that it, she's being asked when she's running for president that that it occurred to her that maybe the system the grand jury system was broken when it came to police uh, uh killings and so I, I have to say i was not only stunned by her unpreparedness but i was not impressed by her uh, answer to the question either we're t- talking to andrew well, from both. yeah well just as just as just as important as you know well not i mean just as important but she's sort of saying that it's the grand jury system yeah. that is broken um when you i can tell you from experience um if you believe that right. if you believe that somehow they're coming to the wrong decision what you do is review the way your prosecutors are presenting that mm-hmm. evidence to the grand jury, and you're making sure that you're putting exculpatory evidence before that grand jury that can be fairly weighed. I mean, that grand jury is literally the sponge that soaks up the information yeah. that you give them in the point. way and the manner and the tone in which you present it. So if she really thought that that was true, she would have done a review with her own prosecutors to delve into that the problem was, and they would have adjusted their presentation accordingly. We're talking to Andrea Cabral for another segment of Law and Order. Andrea, you know, we've all been talking about compassionate release. We talked about it locally in the case of Sal Macy, who was very sick with cancer and whether he should have to serve his full sentence. Very interesting piece by... And he didn't, obviously. He right? did not. Yeah. He did not. Yeah, very interesting piece in the New York Times by someone who wrote a book about Bernie Madoff, arguing that uh, Bernie Madoff and other people who've done terrible, terrible things, Bernie Madoff, people remember, was did that Ponzi scheme and all you know all these people lost their life savings and their college funds, etc. Uh, Seventeen billion dollars um, in uh, investors' money. Anyway, apparently he's got uh, final stages of kidney disease, less than eighteen months to live. She's arguing live. She's arguing that he and lots of other uh, unsavory people um, should still be eligible to get out of prison in compassionate release when they're dying. What, what do you think? You know, I have to say, I mean, this article is written by Colleen Aaron. Yes. Um, and and the mark to me of, of a good piece is when it makes you feel a lot of different contradictory feelings. <laughs> and that was the reaction I had to this. I me would too. read, I'd read a few paragraphs, and I'd say, you know what? That, I I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. And then I'd read something else that she'd say, and I'd say, no, no, I I think she's missing the boat on this. And and I and the reason I liked what she wrote so much is because it is complicated, and we do tend to look for these sort of binary answers for things. It's either one or the other. Because as I'm thinking, yes, every every point that she makes about the fact that um, we are far too punitive as a society, if we want to, uh, part of ending, and this I thought was an excellent point, part of ending mass incarceration 
is once and for all abandoning the notion that retribution and punishment are the only way that we can get to accountability. Yeah. And so she says these brilliant things that really make you think. And then you, and then she says Bernie Madoff is obviously the, the you know, uh, Ponzi scheme equivalent of a serial killer. And then you're reminded about everything he did and you go, but it's Bernie Madoff. And having compassion for Bernie Madoff in the face of his utter lack of feeling for anyone whose life he ruined is a tough thing. It's something that you struggle with as a human being. And you think, you know, but, she, but her point, and this is the other beauty of the article, her overall point in the article was, yes, but you were supposed to be better than that. We're supposed to be always struggling to say that, that we will do better by people than what they have done to others. We, we will, we, as a society, we will rise above. Um, so I, you know, I agree with her and I disagree with her, but I think I agree with her more than not. Yeah, I'm exactly where really, you are. It's a great piece. Can I add two things? That did either of you mention that to qualify for his 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 doctors say he's going to die in 18 months. He's less than so 18 months. So it's not months. like yeah. a, one right. of those he's suffered enough kind of things. Right. He has a much longer sentence, obviously. So that's that. But you know what? The other this is going to sound also, so. Did you know he lost both his sons? I, I knew I was one just going to say killed, killed himself, himself, and his other son uh, died of cancer. Well, here's the point I wanted to make, which I. It, this sounds so sappy, particularly talking to a former prosecutor about why you shouldn't commit crimes. Well, you shouldn't commit crimes because you shouldn't commit crimes. Correct. But as horrible a human crime being not pay, as this guy is, not, as Marjorie said, one son killed himself, one son died, and uh, Madoff was not allowed by the court to uh, get out of jail even for an hour yeah. right. to go to the funeral to either of his kids. And I'm trying to think about about the most horrible thing that could happen to you is losing a child, but losing a child and not even being able to honor their life is just, it's unthinkable. And I'm not quarreling with the judge's decision in this case, but that's one of the parts of a penalty when you determine to screw every human being that you come in touch with in your life, it all comes back as it did in the case of Madoff, even though I end up exactly where you and the author are, uh, Andrea, he probably deserves this compassionate release. So, yeah. In any case, it's been a pleleasure as always. We hope you're here next week. Right. Disappointed See we didn't ya. get the sentence while you're on the air with us because then we could dissect it, but there's still next week. Next week, that's right. Andrew, thank you very much. You're welcome. Andrew joins us every week for Law and Order. She's the CEO of Ascend and former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety. Up next, in his latest book, and it is talk about making you think, ESPN's Howard Bryant looks at racism in America both on and off the playing field. Stay tuned to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. In his new book, Howard Bryan examines the false promise of racial justice in America. One that Trump's presidency is exasperating, as we see in Mike Bloomberg's presidential race with his Mike for Black America campaign. It's one that's continually exploited. 
It's called Full Dissidence Notes from an Uneven Playing Field, a collection of essays about racism in American life. Howard Bryant's the senior writer for ESPN, regular contributor to NPR's Weekend Edition, and the author of several books. Howard, it's great to see you as always. Good to see you too, Jim and Marjorie. It's good to see you too, former right? Boston Herald. I know, fellow. alums. Alum. I knew <laughs> you were right. going to say that first <laughs> thing. That's right. We don't get many in here, you know what I'm saying? So that's why I pointed it out. But Jim, Jim sort of explained what, what you were doing with this uh, with um, a collection of essays about racism in American life. But why did you do this? What was the bigger point you were trying to were you trying to get across here? I think the biggest point was at one point you just felt like you were getting punched in the face. I mean, that was really sort of, in 2016, if you're looking at this combination of Kaepernick and Ferguson and the election and all of this stuff that was taking place, it just struck me as a demarcating line. And I started thinking about it myself where all of a sudden, you know, how many times are you on Facebook with your friends and everybody are, are talking and you realize that you don't talk a lot about politics and you don't talk a lot about life and you don't talk about all these things, these friends that you've had your whole lives. And you then you start talking about real issues and you realize, wait a minute, we've known each other for 30, 40 years and we don't look at this we came from the same place. We have the same values, supposedly, but we really don't. And I thought it was time to take a look at that and realize the different areas where these uh, these issues are sort of pulling us apart. So you describe uh, African-Americans as renters, not owners. And uh, I assume that's at least in part with the uh, the squad go back to where you came from, even though three of the four members of the squad, of course, were born in the United States of America, I guess, without... Uh, other than Congresswoman uh, Omar, was that is that where that came from? No, or has that been no, a lifelong... that's not where it came from. Where yeah. it came from? Sorry, Marjorie, where it came from <laughs> was <laughs> my was, time at the Boston was working at the Herald. <laughs> no, it was... that's actually where it came from. When I was a columnist there in 2002, invariably, anytime someone had a disagreement with a column, it was way over half of the letters and emails I would get. It would be somewhere it was the go back to Africa thing. So I just adopted it, and then my my Yahoo email, I called it my back to Africa file. So you know, I have the way, all these emails. You said that I, I, you were on television with me a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. Yeah. The reaction to that was so people couldn't even believe it was real. It was real, yes. I don't mean the criticism, yeah. but that she actually had a, a go back to Africa file. Oh, sure. It's not uncommon. I mean, like, for example, Bob Ryan and I used to argue this point. We, used to, we didn't argue about it, we used to laugh about it. And uh, we'd be at Fenway, and I would say, you know, he said, you know what, one day we should write identical columns and just switch our, our headshots. And just see what the reaction would be. Exactly same, same words, same everything, same sentiment, and just see what letters come back. And so, and I understand it. I mean, a lot of it was the message. And this is sort of the thing that people, like when we talk about these divisions, one of the center parts of the division is the incredulous response I get from people go, I can't believe this is happening. And then when you talk to black people, they're like, yeah, it's pretty normal. <laughs> this well, is what happens. But that's, I mean, one of the things I, I thought, and by the way, when you look at Renee Graham's column in the, in, the, in the Globe, you look at how many, the comments, how many have been blocked. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's blocked, 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 blocked. And I assume a lot of those are blocked because they're really, really, <laughs> really racist. But, you know, <clears throat> when I said, I was saying this before you came on the air, um, that I, I saw a lot of my, like, white privilege or whatever word you want to use in this when you talked about how um, for a lot of 
white Americans race is something you can you can think about or you can ignore it. And yeah, I think, it's a topic. Yeah, but it's true, so elaborate on that. Yeah, well, it is just a topic. I mean, I think that, and that is the beauty of it. Like when I would, and not to say beauty in terms of racism, but in the beauty in terms of being able to live, there are, you know, you can check out of this or you can check into it as you please, depending on where you live. I used to say all the time, the major difference between black and white in this country is, is that white people can live a good, prosperous, healthy, moral life and really not necessarily come into a whole lot of contact with black people. But for me, there's no possible way that I can and I can live a um, an integrated life, you know, a, a corporate life, any of that, without having to navigate the white world. I have to know how to do this. I have to know how to get involved in and figure it out. And and that is just something that makes me really worried about today's generation of of young black. Uh, professionals, because for us, when we were growing up, your parents were like, yeah, man, life's not fair. This is what it is. You're a minority. This is this is something you're going to have to go through. And today's generation, especially, you know, for those kids, I don't mean to call them kids, but I'm old, right? Um, so for those for that generation whose maybe first election was the Obama election was 08, they have an entirely different expectation of what they think fairness is. And they get, and once again, there's that punch in the face moment when you realize, and to me, that punch in the face moment was, was 2016, where you end up finding yourself thinking, how did this happen? Whereas people in my generation are like, well, of course this is, ha- this is always yeah. what happens when, when you get a tiny bit of a victory. You know, talk a little bit about the book, by the way, is Full Distance Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. We're talking with Howard Bryant. Talk about your own life. You started out in Dorchester, later moved to Milton, but c- compare Plymouth. Con- uh, Plymouth. Plymouth. Plymouth, I'm sorry. Why did I say Milton? Because it's know. a nice town. I wish we went to Milton. No, I don't know why I said Milton. To Plymouth. Um, but start in, in, in Dorchester and how you contrast Blue Hill Avenue and Dorchester Well, that's just, that was really funny. That's just language. I, I, I had never heard the term dot until we moved to Plymouth and until, actually until I went to college when I was in Philly at Temple and people would say, where are you from? And I would say, Dorchester. Oh, you're from Dodd. You're Dodd. I'm like, Dodd Ave. Where's Dodd Ave? <laughs> Dodd Ave is about a half a mile from where you grew up. I mean, for us, the, it's Blue Hill Ave. I mean, if you're black in Dorchester, it's Blue Hill Ave. That, you know, runs you from, you know, all the way down Dorchester, all the way out to Mattapan. That's, that was our street. And so it was interesting that then it just showed you sort of the separation and the segregation in the, in, in the city. But also I sort of felt like um, it was Metco that was really a big deal for me. It was the fact that, you know, everyone talks about Boston and when they hear, you know, how old I am, they're like, oh, busing, busing, busing. We weren't bust. I mean, we were bust, but we were part of the Metco program. So I never went to school in Boston except for like kindergarten and yeah. we went to school in newton and then we moved out of town and, and that is why you moved out of town and that was why schools, exactly well it was the schools and the, and the neighborhood was declining mm-hmm. and so it's so funny when we talk about uh, boston and we talk about white flight and we talk about busing and all of these things it's always from the white perspective right however every, damn near every black family out there too who had any sort of resources who had the opportunity to leave they left and our family was one of them as well. It was like, we're, get, we're getting out of here, too. And you got out. And don't you write that when in Plymouth, uh, I think I was when I was reading the books a couple of weeks ago, you were the only black kid in your classes, were you not? No, I was you weren't? one of there. Were, the other black family was actually Dick Gregory's family. They lived a couple of miles okay. from us. Yeah, <laughs> Which is incredible. Which is kind really. of wild, right? Did you get to know him by, by any chance? Oh, just briefly. I mean, yeah. we'd see him every now and then, and there was the icon, and we would genuflect, <laughs> and he would go on his way. But you know what I thought was, was interesting when you talked about how when you're in, in, in Metco, <clears> or you may have been the minority when you were over there in, 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 in Wabin, or wherever you were, mm-hmm. but then 
you came back home. Yeah. But then you go to Plymouth and you're like 24-7. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really interesting minority. sort of thing. Like the point I was trying to make in that is this, there are so many different black experiences. And we always talk about this idea of the authentic black experience and we treat it as though you only have to be from Harlem or you only are from Roxbury or from the black community. But there are so many black families like mine that you know were put against this white backdrop. And for what? For education. You know, for the opportunity to do to to have a better chance at at life, and it was really sort of funny when you would get out there and you would notice that all of the that your neighbors were all of the white families who were trying to get away from you when you were in Boston. You have some. Um, this must have been hard. But you, you talk about being in Plymouth, how white classmates codified their belief in black illegit- illegitimacy in their language. Boom boxes were ghetto blasters. R and B or funk was jungle music. You were playing street hockey with friends one day, <laughs> and one of the parents asked if you were the puck. If I was the puck, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but we're supposed to laugh at that. I mean, and that's the whole thing, right? You look at that, and it's like, oh, he didn't mean anything by it; it's just a joke. But you got to take that, and you take it, and you take it, and you take it. And at some point, you look at this, and you go, wow, this was kind of rough. I mean, at the same time, growing up, that's sort of how it was, and that was one of the reasons for doing this is because you sort of recognize that. I remember, I mean, those people and that anecdote—they're still my friends to this day. But you also had to sort of endure and know, the as you grow up, the the separation between the two of you in terms of your world beliefs change very much. Well, you well because you write that you were kind of expected that the the the, the, the black guy at the table, a black woman at the table, was kind of expected to absorb this kind of thing without complaining, which is not easy. Well, and if you do complain, do. then you're the troublemaker, right? I mean, this is part of. Um, this is part of being in you know in that white space. And so what the point that I was trying to make in there was why is all this necessary? Why was Metco necessary? One of the big deals about Metco for me was I remember the 2016 50th anniversary of Metco and it was all this celebratory stuff and I remember going to an event at Harvard celebrating the 50th anniversary and I remember thinking after a half century why is this still necessary? And nobody asked that question and the fact that there's a 10-year waiting list for Metco. So in other words the community school in the black community is still just a dream. It's not even going to happen. Well, you know, you, uh, you, one of the lines that really stuck with me in the book is when you, talk, you write, one good deed obscures a long uh, resume of wreckage. And I think it was in the context of Alice Johnson, was yeah, it not? Yeah, Alice yeah. Johnson is a woman who was in jail for 21 years for, it was a first-time drug offense. First-time marijuana not? offense, yeah. And obviously, uh, uh, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, got a lot of praise after he met with Kim Kardashian and ultimately decided to grant clemency there but when you're talking and I, I totally understand how it fits into the trump context one could argue one good deed obscures a long resume of wreckage that almost applies to metco and the boston city schools does it, it not it, it could i mean it, and i think and, and that's the i tried really hard not to necessarily place a value judgment on it as much as i wanted to just say here's what my, my life has been and here's how we sort of navigate where we're at at this stage because at the end of the day was being in that environment good for us? Eventually, yeah. You know, we didn't have to endure the violence that was taking place in, in, in Dorchester. We didn't have to, you know, go through the things that um, that a lot of my friends who stayed there went through. At the same time, you had to deal with something else, which was, you know, it's really interesting. When you look at my family, you look at one half of our family, they all moved out, sub- suburbs, college, the whole thing. And on top of that, it was also, you know, interracial marriages, interracial friends, you know, distance from from the black community. And then on my dad's side of the family, that all stayed in, in you know, Mattapan and Dorchester, 100% black community. 
And so the, this trading of identity, this question, as we were talking off the air, Marjorie, about this idea of authenticity, about what is your identity, and these are the things that you really have to sort of navigate. Um, because there are all those black kids who never grew up around black people, and the minute they get around black people, it's those very black people who look at them and say, you're not real. Uh, we're talking to Howard Bryant. Full dissonance notes from an uneven playing field is his latest. Can we talk about Colin Kaepernick for a minute? Last time you were here, I'm quite sure we were discussing your prior work, <laughs> which was the Heritage, which in great part was about the power of the black athlete. And black athletes chose not to exercise that power in support of Colin Kaepernick, who with one or two or three exceptions, essentially stood alone. Did, did he not? Well, he did. And I think that part of the reason was, I mean, and I think that the players would disagree with that assessment because they feel like they are doing something for their communities. They are do, working with the players coalition and they are, they do feel like they're fighting like the McCourty brothers in Boston and you know, with the Patriots. You know, they are fighting for criminal justice reform and, you know, eliminating cash bail and all of those different issues. My issue with them was why on earth would you go into business with the owners? Why on earth would you go into business with the very people who blackballed the guy who started this? And to me, it was much more of a, I thought it was a childlike response from the players that they, at the, I mean, let's not forget, ball players still call their owners mister. They still call them owners. I mean, do we call our bosses mister? We call them by their first names, right? So there is that paternalism that the players still exercise. And I think that that was an example. I thought if they had stuck together, they could have done something remarkable. Yeah, I'd like to think that I am a, we've talked about Kaepernick a lot, not nearly as much as you've probably thought about it and written about it. I like to think that I support what he did. But I have to say, I often express frustration that he doesn't speak. Yeah, uh, uh, rightfully. Is that rightfully? That's is it okay in your estimation to have that frustration? Sure, it's okay. Is it right or wrong? I don't know. That's up to you. It's what do you think? I, you know, Colin and I talk about this, uh -huh. and when we've gone back and forth about it, I mean, he has his reasons, and I think that the issue is once you put yourself out there, now we expect you to be a leader. And I think what he did was he started something and he didn't necessarily want the rest of that mantle. He had his own plan and his own pathway to go in whatever direction he wanted to go in. And I, and I was of two minds of it. I, you know, when I've said to, to him and his team constantly, if you don't speak then people are going to speak for you. Exactly. You're going to lose your own narrative. You're going to lose your pathway here. And then people are going to define you. And But at the same time, I also asked another question, which is, I don't need Colin Kaepernick to speak for me. I have my own value system, and I know how I feel about this. I don't need Colin to tell me, you know, about what my value should be and, and how I feel about Ferguson. But, you know, my, my concern about him not speaking is not that <coughs> he's not speaking for those of us who like to think that we support what he's doing, but he allows those yeah. who, for example, on sports radio, when he took a settlement with the NFL, they decided to project on him whatever That's horrible... Right, he obviously him. doesn't care about this. All he cared about was the money to begin with. He doesn't care about the issues. He wouldn't have settled. Mm -hmm. And he settled for so... You know, on and on and on like that. So it provides... I mean, I'm sure he thinks about I guess he thinks about this. He provides... He allows uh, those who want to trash him to fill the space because he won't fill it. Does yeah. that worry him? Does that concern him? Or he doesn't... Well, I think that with the announcement last week that he just started his own publishing company, I think he's going to start talking now. Mm. I mean, I think he had his own pathway, um, uh, uh, his own plan. I mean, the big question 
for the people who had supported him over the last several, the last couple of years had been, does he have a plan? Well, yeah. it appears that he does have one, and we'll see what he does with this now that he's, I mean, when you start a publishing company, that essentially says, I have my own voice, and now I'm going to use it. But you wrote in there somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, that when you would be uh, interviewing guys in the locker room or something, you'd ask them something about race, they'd about have a heart attack, like thinking you were trying to set them up. or Yeah, do them well, ha- exactly. Well, there's an anti-blackness to sports, and we seem to think that there's not. I mean, sports is the, the one area where, and we we place such a value in it for two reasons. One, the players are so prominent and they're so talented. And two, they make so much money. So we, we overestimate money. But the players, as we saw with Kaepernick, once you sort of express an unpopular position or you express something that per- supports something uh, serious or political, then all of a sudden all your power gets taken away. So the players, when they see me coming, they're like, oh, what do you want, right? You're going you're gonna to put me in the news cycle. Like, I, remember, I remember David Ortiz used to do it all the time. I would walk in the Red Sox clubhouse and Poppy would look at me like, no, no, not today. <laughs> I, like, I just wanted to say hello. That's it. I just wanted to say what's up. That's it. That's all I wanted. And so, but they recognize, they recognize, and that's one of the reasons in that chapter called The Worst Thing in the World. The, that essay is really all about that trading blackness for money because the player, whether it's OJ, Tiger, Madison Key, any, all these players, they know, and look at what's happening with Mookie Betts here. At some point, at some point, and I'm going out to Arizona in a couple of days, or tomorrow actually, and I'm sure at some point somebody's going to talk to Mookie Betts and ask Mookie about Boston and David Price about Boston and connect it to the Adam Jones thing, and here we go again. And the players don't want to deal with that, right? However, the black community needs to hear from the players. So this is something I understand where the players are like, look, just leave me out of it. But at the same time, they're, they're necessary. You know what, what else I thought was a really interesting section in the book? You talk about white women going out with black guys and in the end ended up sacrificing them. What were, you, what were you getting out there? Oh, what I meant by that was this idea. And I, I was talking about myself and I was talking about a lot of friends that I have who have, you know, when you're put in that that white space where it's like, okay, well, who are you going to date if you live out here? Are you going to date anybody or nobody, right? You date what's there. And, um... <laughs> date what's That's who, right. I'm sorry. The bar, close you, date the you, you, date who's, you date who's there. You love the one you're with, as right? Stephen exactly. said 80 years you ago. Date who's there, right? And so, um, you know, and my, my parents were like, when are you going to meet a black girl? And I would say to them, when are we moving back to the black community? <laughs> Right. And here we go. Right. No, I, what I was trying to get at with that was in terms of relationships, whether they're friendships or romantic, that African-Americans are always expected to meet you halfway or all the way. Because at some point, you know, when you think about the amount of times you've been subjected to going to somebody's house for Thanksgiving or for Christmas or whatever, and you realize they're not coming to you. You're coming to them. I remember when I was a kid and you would, you know, have a girl tell you she liked you or whatever, and she would say, it's okay, my parents are cool. I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't realize I was such a pariah. <laughs> thank, thank goodness that they're cool. Cool about what, you know? About the scourge that is you, right? And so as you go forward with this and, and you get more and more serious and you're dating people and you're talking, I mean, these are real issues. How are you going to talk about Ferguson or how are you going to talk about, you know, policing or Trump or all of these different issues? And you find out whether or not people are going to be able to meet you on your terms. But what it's really always been, and that's sort of the thing about being a, mi- a minority, is you have to go into, into their space and yeah. figure it out. So, Howard Bryan, speaking of Trump, you write uh, the election of Trump is a repudiation of the first black president. Do a little Nostradamus here. Uh, it, was it David Axelrod who wrote that piece? Right, right after the election of Trump, obviously big advisor to Obama, saying it is maybe not in terms of racism, but it is not unusual 
after a two-term president for the next president to be going in a totally different direction. Well, especially a black guy because him. America had to take the country back. Wasn't that so, the theory of <laughs> Do you foresee Trump? a repudiation of Trump in whatever, what is it, eight, nine months from now or no? No, I don't. I I see something else. And the you know, as much about as much as the book is about sort of race and those things, it's also about class and about the billionaire takeover and about the celebrity takeover and the money takeover. And you can start to see it already. I don't know how you feel or don't feel about Elizabeth Warren or about some of the other candidates out there. But I do find it fascinating that suddenly we're already moving into this Bloomberg our billionaire is going to beat your billionaire thing. And so, you know, maybe it's going to be a repudiation of of his policies, but we are certainly moving into a direction now where the ultimate victory of the dollar is now, it's, it's going to be the good billionaire against the bad billionaire, depending on what you think good and bad is. Well, speaking of the good billionaire, Marjorie and I have been talking on the air a lot lately that uh, quoting some uh, major African-American leaders or, or, or media saying as horrible as Mike Bloomberg may be on stop and frisk and redlining, he is worlds better than the other billionaire. Maybe yeah. they don't put it that way or the alleged billionaire in the case exactly, of Donald Trump. Right. How do you react to that kind of thing? Well, I feel it's surrender. I, I feel like we're surrendering in a lot of ways because I think that the if the structure now is going to be you have to be a billionaire to beat a billionaire, we're done. Right. We're absolutely done, because if you look at Bloomberg, is Bloomberg a Democrat? Bloomberg's an he's a plutocrat. I mean, he switches parties when he needs to. And when you think about what your values are, I think what's been bothering me about this is the idea of that surrender and desperation is so severe that people doesn't make a difference who wins the nomination. You've got to vote for that guy yeah? or you have to vote for that woman or whoever it is. If it's Amy Klobuchar, you've got to vote for her. I'm like, do I? I mean, no. I mean, I still – I mean, one of the things that I try to do as a citizen is I never vote against. I vote for. If I'm going to put my name on you, I'm voting for you. I'm not voting against the other guy. And when you're looking you know, from a black perspective, I mean, if, if I say we're done, how bad is the black community going to get it? If everybody's done, we're going to get it worse. And so this whole idea – I mean, the number of African-American friends that I've had who have said, listen – this is really just a lot of white people talking to other white people because, you know, let's not forget who was president during Ferguson. Barack Obama was president when Eric Garner got choked. I mean, our situation is going to be our situation no matter who's up top. Well, one last thing because we're almost out of time here. But um, I, I don't know if I asked you this on the air or off the air, but Obama's confused racial situation growing up with, a, with, <coughs> with his white grandparents while his mm-hmm. white mother was off running around wherever she was. And dad was was gone. He talked about that a lot in his book and about how part of the attraction to Michelle Obama for him was this, you know, stalwart, black family, great mm-hmm. parents, great brother, the whole thing. It was a weird childhood for him. Well, no doubt. And also the fact that, that you're dealing with the, the non-American part of it, too. I mean, right. so his father's not an American. And so if he had a black American experience without the whiteness on his mother's side, does he even win the presidency? It's a totally different conversation and a totally different dynamic. And, and it's interesting, too, that you know, so many times when you think about the colorism in the black community, for a, a Barack Obama to marry a darker-skinned woman, you just don't see that very often either. Howard Bryant is great a great to see you as book, always, and Howard. I'm so glad I got a chance pleasure. to talk to you. Howard Bryant is a senior writer for ESPN, a regular contributor to NPR's Weekend Edition, and the author of several books. His latest book is Full Dissidence, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. Great fun to talk to you, Howard. Thank you no, very my pleasure. much. Thanks for having me. Up next, with America.
left its first Jewish president. The Reverend Zion Monroe and Emma Price join us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browning and Marjorie Egan. Two quick updates. I'm sure you, well, I assume you know by now, Roger Stone was sentenced. He was sentenced to 40 months, uh, obviously a lot less than the original prosecutors had recommended, seven to nine years. He is a first-time offender. And under federal guidelines, he will have to serve at least 85 months of that unless, Marjorie, what uh, uh, Donald Trump... 85%. 85%, I'm sorry. Unless what Donald Trump retweeted a little uh, segment from Tucker Carlson on Fox News suggests that he is going to issue a pardon, who knows when or if, uh, for Roger Stone. That's one. Number two, I want to correct a mistake. I corrected uh, Andrew Cabral before, who repeated a number that had been used by Vice President Biden last night that I could not believe was true, that there had been five million stop-and-frisk encounters under Bloomberg in New York City. According to the New York City Civil Liberties Union, over his full term, obviously he was a three-term uh, uh, mayor, that five million figures, right? So apologies well, to Andrea be, and to Vice President Biden. I think it was one person being stopped many times, obviously. Right, and over 12 years. Over yeah. and over again. In any case, uh, that's the update. Here is some Studio 3 to take on the moral dilemmas of the day. Those are some of them. Our Reverend Irene Monroe and Emmett Price III. Reverend Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, Boston Voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Emmett is a professor and executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and they're the hosts of the All Revved Up podcast. To learn more about that Yay. and to subscribe, go, thank you, Irene, <laughs> go to allrevvedup.org. Hello to both of you. Hey, thanks for having and us back. And glad to be back. Glad and happy Black History Month. That's yeah. right. Happy Black it's been History a bu- Month. It's been a busy month for Emmett and I. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, we've got a, a very interesting piece about uh, Black History Month in just a second. But before we get to that and other things, uh, this is your chance if you have anything to say about the Rock'em Sock'em debate that we had last night. I don't know if you guys even watched oh, it. Oh, yes. Oh, how could you not? Well, because a lot of people had better things to do. I felt like I needed popcorn. Okay. I know. We should have had popcorn. But do, 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 anything you'd like to say about this, Emmett, or well, let it pass? I'm, I'm going to try to get this comment in before Irene shuts me up. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, Time's as, up. I'm as, sorry. I know, that, that's right here. As an independent. Yeah. I'm just so confused as to what the de- Democrats are doing. And particularly as an independent who usually votes more Democratic than anything else, I'm really confused at what we're doing right now. I think the Democrats should get in the back room, figure out a slate, and try to move it forward. Okay, yeah. now, so you okay. want you want? By the way, you know who like said that? Who? Bloomberg said that yeah. in a letter yesterday morning yeah. that yeah. those who, quote, yeah. don't have a chance should get out. Yeah, so yeah well, he well, may not have a chance himself. This is the only way I will, will sort of resonate with Emmett. We still don't have any game. I thought Elizabeth eviscerated Mike. Yes, she did. Um, I I do feel I felt that Bar- uh, and all of them made some good points about buying your way in terms of this election here. I thought I thought Buttigieg was brilliant. He says, "Well, I'm the really sort of authentic Democrat here in the in the piece here." I was troubled by how he and Amy. Uh, Globachar went after each other. And so I, I left the debate feeling somewhat like Emmett, but not totally, because I will vote for whoever gets at the top of the ticket, that w- we have no game. Um, and and I think I, I'm confused by Mike's 
ads with Obama in it. Uh, and he's, That's the point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm really, Absolutely. It's you know, brilliant. Yeah. And so he had nothing to lose, largely because he's not on the ballot for Nevada. So it, it's to see what happens. But I'm sorry. I'll be I'll be sorry that Elizabeth's performance doesn't get her more, more votes and more money. Well, you don't know. We, I mean, one of the interesting things which we have still gotten to the bottom of is obviously Amy Klobuchar was hugely helped by her a week ago Friday yeah, debate was. performance in the third place in New Hampshire. I thought she was atrocious last night. Warren was spectacular. But one of the interesting stats our colleagues, our team came up with here, 75,000 people have already early voted in Nevada, yeah, yeah. which obviously they are not affected because they have voted before. And the really interesting statistic they followed with, again, our colleagues, is there were only somewhere in the 80,000s in 2016 who early voted and 118,000 in Nevada in 2008, which means that unless they have a record turnout, which they may – Somewhere in the neighborhood, is it possible of 60 to 70 percent of the people who are going to vote have voted already? So I'm assuming that something this is, else is This going is on not here. going to be a win for Elizabeth, Nevada, but it will definitely divide the Afri- African-American and Latinx vote, certainly moving forward, particularly going into Super Tuesday. So she has some, you know, but I don't see a clear pathway, but I do think she will get a bump you know, on, on well, Super you know, sixty percent of the uh, forget Super, I mean, before Super Tuesday, sixty percent of projected of the primary voters, Democratic primary voters in South Carolina are African American, mm-hmm. and I, I think she did make a pretty strong case against Bloomberg and for racial equity, and uh, so who knows? I, I you're right. Who knows? Yeah, but yeah. I do. I can't say this, although I'm not a soothsayer. Uh, Mike is is tanked in terms of the black community. He will get some vote, but he's not going to get what, what would have the information about stop and frisk. He's not going to get at the uh, LGBT vote because he called LGBT folks it. You know, particularly by the way, that trans. Did, I'm so glad you said that. The it, piece that we mentioned this in the air, yeah. he referred in 2019 That's right. to a trans it's, woman as, as do I call her he, she, or it. it right. That didn't come up at yeah. all in last Yeah, And debate. then the whole thing about women, but then it, it's all women because of the whole idea of us being fat broads and also horse-faced <laughs> lesbian. He I know. is tanked. He is really tanked. Really tanked. <laughs> I think that was yeah. Trump but, but can I tell you this, though? On BET, every, every black radio station, which I, I, watch into, I, I listen to, and BET and, and TV One, I swear to you, every other ad is Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. And talking, and the particular one is at this construction site with this woman and two men saying, yeah, I support black minority businesses. You know, speaking of Bloomberg and Sanders, who at the moment, at least in national polls before last night, are the two front runners, uh, uh, they both share something beyond... Heart stents, as we learned last night. <laughs> uh, uh, they're both yeah. Jewish. Uh, and as we know, we've never had a Jewish nominee for uh, president. We had, obviously, well, Lieberman running yeah. as a VP. Yeah. Well, he ran for yeah. the nomination didn't get it. Uh, apparently, uh, Bloomberg is a fairly serious practicing Jew. Sanders is not, but has put cultural. out a spot. He's cultural. He's like you. Well, I think that yeah. probably is true. Yeah. But he is. I have not put out an ad saying yeah. how important Judaism is is to yeah. me in my life. He has put one out. I assume. I don't know if it's for political reasons or real. Uh, the fact that we're even at this stage, even if neither of them end up getting it, is a pretty dramatic moment. And let me add one more thing. What Marjorie said about an hour ago is considering all the anti-Semitism that's really been on the rise in this country, the fact that so little of it, at least publicly, 
Emmett has been directed at these two guys so far right. is actually heartening. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but heartening. Well, I think I, I think it is a little overly optimistic because I think the challenge is that until now, um, we, we've never seen them as necessarily being stalwarts of the Jewish community, have being activists, you know, being aggressively, um, you know, pro you know, whatever it is. And so Bloomberg is though. Yeah, he gives well, a huge he gets, money. Yeah, he gets I, a lot of money. Yeah, but I mean he's 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 just into this campaign and into this cycle. Um he just made his first, you know, debut on the debate. And I think that the the the, the door is gonna swing both ways. I think he's gonna be out pretty soon too. But for, for, for Sanders, we haven't seen that from him, you know, and I think that that's a huge challenge because I'm not sure that it's a target towards a Jewish vote, this, the way that, that I don't believe there is a black vote, the way that I don't believe that there is yeah, but, a woman vote. Yeah, but you know what segmented. he does, though? I think what's very wonderful here, we, it, it, as Emmett would say about African-Americans, Jewish folks are not a monolithic. So right. when we when we look at Joe Lieberman, we see an orthodox. When we look at certainly Bloomberg, we see a practicing one. And when we see Bernie, we see a cultural Jew yeah. here. So what I like about this moment here is that we really, you ready, Marjorie? We're seeing the intersection, intersection. There we go. There you of, go. of Judaism and politics, you know, and, and, and it really. Thanks for giving <laughs> a warning, Irene. We Absolutely. appreciate it. Really, any time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, between really practicing and cultural Jews yeah. at a time that we are very, very polarized, I think it's very important that there might be a way in normalizing Judaism because Judaism at one point, and may still be in some way to some folks, an it's an un-American supposedly threat to the American landscape that is supposedly, you know, Christian majority. But this is what I hope that maybe Emmett will also agree with me. Maybe now, if with with, with more acceptance of, of of Judaism, we can now put Jesus in his in his rightful historical and cultural context. Because again, we have taken him out of his historical context. We will look at Easter. We will look at certainly Christmas differently. You know what I mean? In terms will of we a reference, you know, that's my hope. Yeah, I. I I would love to get there. I don't think we can because, like Irene said about the, the intersection of, of, of orthodox, cultural, and whatnot, I think we have the same thing in Christianity, particularly within evangelicalism. We have cultural evangelicals, and then we have, mm -hmm. you know, uh, practicing evangelicals, and then we have orthodox evangelicals. You have these streams, and I think folks are not necessarily willing to give up these spaces that they're entrenched within. I know, but see, my point is to call yourself a good Christian is to recognize anti-Semitism and that as much as we love Jesus, is that we all, I mean, we got to recognize who he is, but this is what I'm hoping. And I think what is very, very wonderful. What do you mean, that, that he's Jewish? Yeah, that Jesus is Jewish, yeah. that, 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 you know, that, that the Last Supper is a Seder. I mean, that he was, he, you know, that nativity scene. I mean, no room in the inn is because he was a Jew and all of that stuff. But what I'm hoping for, and I, and I appreciate what Charlie Baker did on January 6th. He passed a bill, uh, $1.5 million um, for the nonprofit security grant program. And I'm hoping, this is what, what I'm hoping for, is this, because anti-Semitism is so pervasive as to be invisible, that, that this will make us more cognizant of those little uh, implicit forms of anti-Semitism. You know, in, I live in Brookline where there's a lot of uh, temples and... Um, now they have people not going through the front door anymore. Right. They're yeah. going through the side, side door. door. That's right. And they've got security. And it's really, 
kind of creepy, but I, I think that people are rightfully concerned. Anyway, Irene, you came in here talking about uh, being b- very busy during Black History Month. Interesting piece by this Erin Aubrey Kaplan in the New York Times about uh, a case for a more negative Black History Month. What That's you right. That, about? And so the, the reason why I said I've been busy Black History Month, I have fondly dubbed it as High Black Employment Month for Irene <laughs> because everybody white or want to be woke or PC have me come speak. Not that I, don't, I can't speak other times, but particularly Black History Month. And I love this piece largely because it's an all-encompassing piece, really, both in terms of both, I think, the sort of moral and and political kind of way in which we we do Black History Month to feel good. Black people feeling good, as well as white people who will attend all these. Listen, I have to tell you, from MLK Day throughout uh, February, we, okay, we're some busy people. So here, I have to interrupt at this point, and just as I said to Senator Markey and Congressman Kennedy the other night, uh, Irene, you have much more time in this segment. Take it away, Emmett Price. Go ahead. What's your reaction? I need to see the time. I didn't like it at all. Really? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't because I think that it gives too much agency to whoever the you you know ubiquitous we are. I don't know who her we is. I think it was well written. I do, but I don't know who her we is. I don't know if it's we black people. I don't know if it's we Americans. I don't know if it's we you know woke people. I don't know who the we is. And so for me, the agency uh, is on how do I choose to spend this month. Do I choose to spend it uh, with my children, uh, making sure that they know the rest of the history that's not in the curriculum? Uh, Do they know the rest of the things? And as Irene said, we do this 365 days a year. But but I do honor the fact that when Carter G. Woodson uh, created Negro History Week in 1926, the intention was for black folks to show and display how much of, 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 of assets we were or we are An to this great nation. Yeah, yeah. And so we have leveraged that agency to everyone else. Right. And so I think it needs to be an introspective moment, particularly for black people, to really feel that that we have uh, uh, we have no longer in Tony uh, we've not overcome way. though <laughs> we 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 don't have to lend ourselves to the white gaze anymore. There's no need for us to seek um, the the applause or to seek the approval of white folks. Yeah, but this think, is our nation. But as well. but but no 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 no. It was twofold. The we it is, is our the, nation. The we the we is America. Um, Carter Woodson, if you read uh, the Miseducation of, of the Negro, it was it was it did have very much a white gaze because it was doing two things here. It was trying to dispunk this notion that as African-American we did not have a history So and, and understanding that we weren't writing our own history here. So what he did was is that it was to, you know, disprove that premise that was prevalent. And that's why you don't see us in the history book. And number two is for us to not only know that we have a history, it's it's to now take the little bit that we that we're starting with to expand that history and dig it up ourselves. You know, Howard Bryant, in the discussion we just had in his fabulous book, Full Dissidents, describes African-Americans as renters, Mm -hmm. not owners, because That's of right. some fairly obvious things. You buy that characterization, Emmett Price? Yeah, I mean, you know, the of issue... Of this country, obviously. Yeah, I'm I mean, the issue, the issue with race is not just the, the discourse of race, but the, but the material praxis of race. So, reality, so yeah. policies and, and, and you, know, um, you know, positions and platforms have been built on this racial construct. So, so he, I think he's absolutely right. Yeah. Not because we don't want to own, 
but because we have been told continuously, continuously, continuously that we cannot own. Yeah. And not because we can't afford it, but because ownership has not necessarily been available to and us. And we're not even ownership of our own narratives here. So that that becomes also problematic, too. I give you a classic example. And then when we try to own our our narrative, it gets revamped or, or stolen. A, a classic example of that is, is the net confession of Nat Turner. Oh, so you yeah. had you had a William very Styron. you had a very well-known author yeah. who, who and and the audacity and the hubris to assume that Nat Turner did all he did because he was in love with a white woman and that he did not okay working on that racial trope that he would not you know cause an insurrection because of the passion for freedom. So I mean that's that becomes the kind of problematic thing. I love this piece, you know, for a lot of reasons the because New York Times piece. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I I did because the point is is that we always want to go to the celebratory moment and not look at what we are covering up in order to to give not only a good feeling but a sense of legitimacy you know, of I what just, we're doing. I just looked at the date that was published, the confession of Nat Turner, which won the Pulitzer Prize, by the way. Yes, it did. Um, 67. That a would bad never, time. That yeah. would never be written today. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Yeah, it would. Absolutely. Because because we have the help. Yeah. We have. Yeah. The, no, no, no. Or Marjorie has talked about that. You're really striking. A we have. No, no, no. No, well, she is. The help, totally the help was the so okay. insulting. We have the green book that, and and I love well, the green book. That's a great okay. point. And that's I a great l- point. and I love the guy that won the the Oscar for it and all of that. But no, again, listen. Even when we look at the Oscars here, and I love the woman who played Harriet, Cynthia. Oh no. Uh, I can't pronounce it. Singer. Know, great yeah. singer. Absolutely. But again, it, it's, if we don't get awards unless we're playing slaves and maids. Well, wait a second. Well, forget, you know, forget the Oscars. How about last night? We started with the most diverse field of Democratic candidates ever. Yeah. And look at the stage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and I loved Elizabeth, but I felt like Elizabeth was talking for black women and black mm-hmm. people. And I kept thinking, and I love what she did. It's not to denigrate however, anything. She, but however, I felt that it would have been better understood, more nuanced. And not that, that she doesn't get it. If we had a black person on and that's, the panel. And that's why who is we? Who is we? Right? We because you can't, you can't. But, 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 but. but the challenge of that is, if that's the case, then America should have desired We're to American. have a black woman to be on this stage, but they chose not to. So there's still an insider-outsider notion here yeah. in terms of who and we Clyburn, are. And no, see, I would and say the, the two whitest states in America, two of the whitest states in America, uh, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, made that decision essentially. Right. Well, but but there but there's more to it. And I thought that Clyburn, um, Jim Clyburn, who's the majority whip for the Democrat, I highest he, ranking black right, in Congress. I thought he brought it up. He said that he had wished that Corey and 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 uh, Kamala, Kamala could have stayed longer, yeah. and that we need to re-examine how we do funding. But I thought what was very interesting that nobody's really picking up here, there's a scramble for black votes. And I felt that the State of the Union by Trump really highlight, highlighted that when he showcased the Tuskegee Airmen, oh. that he's going to give a uh, a scholarship to this young young black kid to go any place she wants. Diane want. Patrick told us she thought okay. it was total exploitation. Okay. Well, that that gave absolutely. I don't even know why Irene's bringing it no, up. But yeah, absolute totally, exploitation. No, no, but you, we got to take this seriously because there is this million-dollar campaign going into various cities here called uh, Black Votes for Trump. And the point is, is that he got 13% of black men last time. He just need a total of 14% to really cap yeah. the election. I, to, to not their take, wives and girlfriends to not to today, them out. Not take Trump <laughs> seriously is a, is, is a misgiving. Okay, okay, we're out of time. But thank you very much, as, as always. Oh, can I just say this about what? Black History Month? What? Yeah. 
You're not it's done a high, yet. It's I a really high are. profitable month for me. <laughs> high profitable. Good for That's you. Right. <laughs> Two days left. Get the get the pocketbook out. Every bit. Every bit. <laughs> Reverend Irene Monroe and Emmett Price join us every week for All Revved Up. Reverend Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston Voice for Detours, African American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. Emmett G. Price III is a professor and executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. They're hosts of the All Revved Up podcast, which is really fun to learn more about it. Subscribe, subscribe, that is, go to allrevvedup.org. Irene and Emmett, thank you very much. Up next, Alex Beam is here to tell us about pigeons with MAGA hats out in Las Vegas. Oh, my God, that's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And here with us in Studio 3 is Alex Beam. And every time he's here, you know, we marvel that his name is Alex Beam. Because when Alex writes, this is Marjorie's thought this morning, Alex Cora comes to mind. <laughs> because we wonder, how many times does he bang on a trash can in order to get his columns published? I, I, that was a brilliant analysis, I have to say, by you, Marjorie. Oh, thank, thank you very you much, that. Jim. Yeah. Also, I where best. is Alex Cora? I read the Globe every I morning. I am so with you. Why isn't that story written? What? I'm with you. But there's some guy. Well, but I mean, there's sort of some guy whose name begins with R, who's the interim manager. But we're never sort Renicky, of Renicky. Yeah, yeah, we're never told where Cora is. Is he under I'm indictment? With, talk to your newspaper. Is he hiding somewhere? Yeah, you, under work, a rock? you work there, Alex. Well, I know. I'm, sort believe of. me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm like Alex Cora. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that we can all agree that the most important sound oh, yeah. coming out of last night's uh, debate was uh, this little moment about uh, health issues. Here it is. Thank you, Las Vegas, for the excellent medical care I got in the hospital two days. And I think the one area maybe the Mayor Bloomberg and I share, you have two stents as well. All right. 25 years ago. <laughs> well, we both have two stents. It's a procedure that it's done about a million times a year. I so, said earlier this morning, there hasn't been enough stent talk in presidential uh, exactly. debates. Would you not agree with that? I, first of all, I wasn't prepared to talk about this. Second oh. of all, I'm obsessed with cathing. I'm, 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 I'm panicked uh, to, to this point of death of being cathed. Yeah. So what they were talking about was both uh, cardiac catheterization. In fact, I got in a fight with somebody on Twitter who I won't name because he, he gets a... a paycheck from you guys as to whether uh, Sanders had heart surgery because I gather he was cathed. He had the stent put in. That's yeah. not a, I, I aver that's not heart surgery. Now maybe you know doctors. What is it? A heart intervention? Well you know they go through your thigh. Yeah, I did not know that. They, they put a wire up through yeah. your thigh. It's, yeah. it's, it's, um, but it, anyway, I don't, it why did you want to talk your, about it? it go because to your we figure we give you sound. an idea for like nine or ten columns. So, well, I mean, that is so up your alley. I, I, I'm going to leave her aside because I know mm. she does yoga. Don't you live in, because uh, you're a hypochondriac going I am a in. hypochondriac, yes. You don't want to be cast, do you? No, I don't, but I, I'm thinking of just doing it for a day off, actually. I'm thinking <laughs> maybe I can get a stent. If you do yoga, you don't have to worry about that? Is that what you're telling me? You know, any, I, I have to be so careful what I say, so I have to cl- cloak everything in Aesopian terms. But let's just say you're in good health, okay, because I saw you doing the handstand, this and that. Yeah. You're not going to be I cast. I hope so. I can I guarantee myself. you. Go to at Jim Browdy on Twitter if you want to see Marjorie preparing for uh, Well, you know why I did that? Show. I was having a difficult morning and sometimes if you do a handstand and you get your your feet above your heart you yeah. get the blood comes into no, no, your head I mean, and you've been and very you sharp feel, all day Marjorie. i've tried been very sharp you know it, it ebbs and flows but i do the best so I yeah can. two stand anyway i mean uh god bless america apparently um in most parts of america you're an hour away from a cath lab 
But you should be cast uh, within 60 minutes, I believe, if you're, if you're having a full-blown heart attack or stroke. Okay. Well, so, thank you very much for informing yeah. us. But I think it's heart something because the catheter is pushing something up to your heart, is it not? Well, well, one of the val- the uh, arteries, arteries it's, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really kind of ingenious and apparently quite safe, even though it utterly terrorizes me. But, yeah, as you know, they, they insert this kind of – it's like a, a, a gold mine. You know, they prop up the cave. They open the cave by putting in timbers in the gold mine. Here they put a tiny piece of – I think it's plastic or something to keep the artery open. It's pretty, uh, it is pretty ingenious, actually. So, Alex, you lived in Russia, right? Terrifying. Yes, I did. Now – were you a member, there's one of our staff said, of Pigeons United to Interfere <laughs> Now? Now, obviously, the ac- that's the an acronym. the story Putin. of the day. Do you know about <laughs> Pigeons United to Interfere <laughs> Now? I'm sworn to secrecy. <laughs> so okay, at least tell us, even if you weren't a member, explain to us what that particular Putin is, please. Yeah, this is something nuts. Of course, I guess the... You know, the eyes of the world, meaning like our very little world, have been on Las Vegas and Nevada. So I guess for the second time, a group of um, wags, if you will, have tricked out pigeons. My memory is totally shy. I forget the first time, but the second time they tricked out pigeons, they put using uh, eyelash glue, Glue, which I I hardly knew existed. Sorry. Um, they, they, They glued tiny little... Mega caps, those yes. distinctive red mega caps. <laughs> seen the video? And the pigeons. Yeah, great. Oh, really? great. But how, they, did they do more than three pigeons? Oh yes, oh, they, they did, did. Like I say, a couple of dozen. Of dozen. And yeah. one of them has got a Trump hairdo, so it's really funny. Blue to his head I hope that the pigeons aren't made uncomfortable by this, though. I mean, you know, I don't know. They want to have little mega hats on their head or any hats on their head, but they seem to be flying around. Uh, without any difficulty, they don't seem to be in any discomfort. So it was. I don't, but the weird thing was that it's a it's a pro-Trump gesture, yes. which kind of surprised me because I don't know if I'd want my supporters running around, you know, with pigeon Pigeons? dung all over them, releasing <laughs> filthy birds. Oh, the other thing was they degreased them. Oh, I wasn't, didn't know that. I think that was yeah. To they, what end? What was that? Because they're filthy, and I think they have a layer of grease on their um, pigeons. They do that before, so they can oh. handle them properly to put the little hat on them. Anyway, it's utterly <laughs> nuts, but it's great. I mean, it's I mean, it's a great country, and I'm glad people are spending time uh, doing stuff like that. Again, it's uh, Putin, and the, it spells out pigeons united to interfere now. And again, they were protesting the six Democratic candidates on the uh, stage there. Now, I I did not realize that you can pay someone $2,000 to come style your houseplants, but I'm thinking about (laughs) investing because I could use some help in that regard. Have you you used this service, Alex? Is that why you wanted to talk about it? I haven't, but... um, the New York Times invested what, like three thousand words in its style <laughs> section of yeah. yeah, profiling these people. Now, and and it was either two thousand dollars, which it's weird. I guess you and I are of an age where, like, um, concierge medicine costs two thousand dollars. Does it? Yeah. Okay. Why don't you explain what that is? By okay. Way. Pay well, extra. I, that's another thing I'm obsessed about because I don't have it. But like fifteen years ago. My doctor came to me and said, "If you want me to be continue to be your doctor, you got to pay me fifteen hundred bucks cash, no insurance, no nothing, and then I'll be your doctor and I'll pay attention to you. Otherwise, you're just like everybody else." Anyway, there's a whole field now. It's a big, big deal called concierge medicine, where basically well-to-do people who have two thousand dollars of uh, extra income, if you will, can can get much more. T- it's, it's it's like a it's, membership fee. I'm going to put you in the spot. Right Are, do you use constant? No, I don't. Because you should. Because you're a heavy user. I have so many doctors on retainer. I don't even. <laughs> I don't even need concierge Excellent. care. Excellent. I, I've always, I, don't, I don't believe you. I bet you do have no, concierge care. No, I'm, telling the, the I'm totally telling the truth. I'm suspicious, I Alex. I'm suspicious. 
I've always, I've always it's eschewed. A little personal, actually. Don't think. I've ahead. eschewed concierge medicine, but I wonder if it's a, a, a false economy, as they say. Well, in any case, we'll get away from medicine because for the exact. By the way, without naming names, though, uh, my brand new doctor, who I've not even met because my prior doctor resigned. I think it was overuse on my part. <laughs> exactly. She, she left the practice. She couldn't take it's, it By the way, anymore. it's the second great doctor I've had in a row yeah. who has uh, resigned. Really? The profession. Well, well you, you only putting, can take so many phone calls my, and tweets and emails. Without uh, naming names, text. my soon-to-be new doctor, when I meet her in April, is the daughter of, I believe, the local doctor who started uh, concierge uh, medicine. In this. I know the name of that doctor. So do you mind sharing her final name? I do, yes. You do mind? <laughs> yeah, I do mind. Oh, you can say who you think that is. No, no, it's, a, it's an medicine. older guy. He did it about twenty years ago because um, I wrote a really hostile column about losing two doctors in a row to concierge medicine, mm-hmm. and they said, "Oh, talk to this this." Uh, I'm, his name was something like Rosenberg, but I, but I, I not him. Okay, but that anyway. This is a guy who invented the field, and he was supposed to assure me how it was all in the up and up. It's BS, man. It's medicine for Michael Bloomberg. But that's what's going to happen when if if we get Medicare for all. I mean, everybody's going to have that that secondary insurance like. They're doing great Britain, Yeah, but right? if I may say, but if the basic and defense of Medicare for all, I'm not taking positions, I'm just mm-hmm. explaining, def- uh, uh, are, are those in favor would say, but the, the base level that it's everybody covered. will get exactly. will be really solid. Right. And then if you choose to buy more, or you buy more. But if you're a high roller hypochondriac, like someone we know, you could do the concierge I mean, I, thing. You're right about the possible consequence of Medicare. What shocked me about concierge medicine when it happened to me when I was, say, in my early 50s, was it, it wasn't Medicare for all. Like, I was already paying for private mm-hmm. health insurance. Like, like, what the heck was kind of my... Uh, anyway... I, I've always resisted it, but I'm, I mean, as you get older, you wonder, well, if I have $2,000 to spend on styling my plants, maybe that would be better directed. To. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, much as I would love to have my plants styled, maybe I should think about it. You know what the New York Concierge, Times story, and my you said 3,000 words. Well, I read the $2,000 figure in New York, and mm-hmm. they said it's mostly, need to say, upper income people who do it. I guess so. 2000 for what? Is it 2000 for a year's worth of service? Is it $2,000 for one Thing. No, they don't service. They it come was in clear with the plans that they, yeah, that was like a yearly. And they give retainer. you instructions. Oh, I think yeah. they, no. Oh, they don't do the servicing of the plants. I don't think so. I think I think they do. But I think they take responsibility for the plants. Design oh. plants, potting, delivery of plants, and a detailed care guide. Oh, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's it's like. <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised that knowing the times next week they'll have a similarly inane article. About sort of you know people who want pets but can't be bothered to feed them or something. Yeah. That, so for two thousand dollars, you know, we'll we'll choose a pet for you. We'll come to your yeah. house. We'll walk the pet, but you can have this decorative thing to put out on Instagram. Blah blah. His blah. Marjorie would told you this is serious. By the way, well, I don't mean serious. It's true. Do you know what she wants to do when this radio thing dries up? Does she have ever told you? I'm yeah. serious. But you know no, what it is? I'm going to interrupt you. You know what my wife wants to do? My wife what? wants to become a dog breeder. Is that really true? She does. Are you want to go? That to- would be no. fun. Oh, I thought that's what you were going to say. No, no. A flower ranger. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to become a gardener in my old age, but it's not. I'm not that good at it, so I'm just learning. But you well, should do that. I do. I do. I, I have. I have uh, quite a, quite a little garden. Now. The only it's problem with the gardening is, is you. Don't may, you live listeners. in a third floor walk up? I do. <laughs> Where's the garden? But you walk down the and then porch. you do it in the oh. back porch, front porch, and you know the little little stretch between the sidewalk and the and the street. You do that really? I did. I did. I planted that. 
it, it was very Beautiful. exciting. Yeah, I've always wondered if the authorities can come after you for that because you yeah, don't. It is public land. I'm beautifying the street. Yeah. Next year, I'm going to do the other half, so I'll have both halves done. I'm, I'm so impressed. Uh, I'm, I, God yeah, bless I really you. like You're it. Doing you the know right that if you were listening during last year's pledge drive, uh, Alex, which I'm sure you were, is mm-hmm. Marjorie, in addition to the amount that we both voluntarily do as sustainers here, Marjorie, for some reason, instead of just saying to the people from the pledge, can I have a couple of earbuds, wireless earbuds says, I'll do add $10 a month on top of what I give, which was generous. So essentially, she's paying $120 a year forever for a <laughs> pair of, uh, of uh, earbuds. They're great, but they probably cost like $20. Yeah. And the reason I even bring this up is the first day that Marty's wearing them, she texts me. She says, they're great. I really love them. I haven't had wireless earbuds before. And then, I'm sorry. What happened? I forgot. What happened? Well, they fell out of my ears in the mulch. And that was the end of it. So they lasted about an hour. Were they those Bose earbuds? Bose makes it kind of interesting. I don't know what brand they are here, but they're great. You can imagine how hard it is to find black earbuds You know, if GBH was serious about raising money, they should rent you guys out for, uh, they should say, Marjorie will come garden at your house. That is brilliant. For an hour for $1,000. And then you can come on the exercise cycle. Jim will come to your house and, and like go on your rowing machine. Or you know what I could do? Actually, I will talk I'm to I'm trying to think of a skill you have. I have a actually. skill. Okay. I can invite a listener to the, go to the doctor with me for exactly. my, my next regular examination. If they have three hours to spare. <laughs> right, We're talking to Alex oh, uh, Beam. Okay, we haven't gotten to any of our stories yet, have well, we? Well, some we have, yeah. Okay. That's all right. So let's talk about... Um, Oops, I can't even read my... Oh, a great coin. The, the, George, uh, George, George coin. coin yeah. The uh, 87-year-old uh, priest that just died, and the, the Vatican astronomer. He's kind of an interesting character. Utterly fascinating story. Utterly yeah. fascinating. And, and really well-written. Uh, I guess it's an obituary in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. I had not heard of George Coyne. Is Neither that... did I. Um, Jesuit? You know, we, we... Astrophysicist. Well, Jesuit says it all, does yeah. it not? Um you know, we knew in the back of our minds there's so much weird stuff going on in Vatican City. I mean, there is an astronomer and there's an observatory at Castel Gandolfo, but uh, Rome is so polluted that now I, it, it's always funny the Catholic Church. I'm not Catholic, as you know, and I know you are, but it's funny. Like, where do they find the money basically to start a new observatory in Southwest Arizona? I you, don't know. You got to ask yourself. I right? don't know. They do have a lot of property and they have a lot of artwork. I, I understand that. A lot well, of oceanfront property. In any case, Coin sounds. I'm sorry he's not living, but I know that he's he's reached his heavenly reward. The reason we're interested in him and talking about him now is that he he was a, a real scientist, right? Yeah. And so, in, as in so many other, a lot of people make a, a living out of hating the Vatican. But curiously, the Vatican has many scientists on its payroll, and he was one of them. And the reason it's kind of. Uh, Evocative, if you will, was because I mean I guess the Vatican wanted to kill Galileo, you know, for saying yep. that the or jail him we, anyway, yeah, jail him and to, you know remove all his privilege. So in Darwin, they weren't fans of him. It's really refreshing. Obviously. He's not alone um, by any means, but it was really refreshing to to read about a man of science who's simultaneously a person of faith who lives in both worlds. And in my strong belief, two worlds that can coexist. I think, you know, eighth, smart eighth graders say, oh, well, how can God exist because of quantum physics? That's nuts. And anyway, so that's enough out of me. But um, Coyne was clearly a, a, distinguished, a distinguished professor 
of astronomy who happened to work for the Vatican. Yes, so, he did. And he would go toe-to-toe with the uh, guys like Richard Dawkins, the uh, big atheist guy that when I remember going to see him in some event when I was working for the Globe's Catholic section, the place was actually sold out with 20-somethings to see Richard Dawkins over there. That doesn't surprise me. No, it doesn't surprise me at all. So, By the way, Teilhard de Chardin, another brilliant geologist and paleontologist that was a Jesuit. That another was, Jesuit. Yeah. Another Jesuit. Yeah, he was really Jesuits famous. Jesuits rule the world. If I, had been, if I had a Jesuit education, I'd be a Catholic. That's there for sure. There you go. So, there Alex, go. Oh, we're going to move up a little bit because we don't want to run out of time because your explainer, most of your explainers are not that relevant to anything people care about, even though they're interesting. <laughs> oh, no, I don't, I don't mean that critically at all. They're sort of intellectual curiosities. Uh-huh. This one actually relates to something that is going on right now that the vast majority of people whom I am friendly with do not understand. So explain first what you're going to explain. What is it? Yeah, this is unfortunately sort of a public service because, yeah, you're actually going to learn something if you keep the radio on for another uh, minute and 20 seconds. Um, I think we should give them two minutes. Two minutes. minutes. Not only did no one understand the Iowa caucuses, Mm -hmm. I mean, which were impossible to understand and then were botched, but we are going to help people explain what's good about the Nevada caucuses and why, knock on wood, um, they're going to be much more successful. Okay, so wait. You have to wait three more seconds and give them two minutes because two this minutes. is really important. Absolutely. Well, let's not exaggerate. Well, let's not, okay, yeah, give them a minute. I, I can't like get a wild. Okay. Yeah, take it away. Oh, Go. What's interesting? Uh, caucuses are not primaries, of course. Whoa. Caucuses are run by the parties, um, so they're not funded by the state. Now, let's talk specifically about the Nevada caucus mm-hmm. and how it's different from the deva- disastrous Iowa caucus. A, it's on Saturday. Who bleeping knew? I don't know. I did not know. It's on Saturday, so that lots of men and women of really from every age group are free to attend the caucus if they want to. Register Democrats, but they can register uh, on the spot in Nevada. What else is interesting about the Nevada caucuses? Yes, it's the same complicated thing as the Iowa thing in that if you show up and your man or woman doesn't get 15 percent, you need to you need. Let's just you know, keep it simple. You need to walk over to the Bernie thing or you need it's to called if they're not viable. They're not. Yeah. If your candidate's not viable, you need yeah. to, to align yourself with a viable candidate. But wait, it gets more complicated, uh-huh. but more interesting. The Nevada caucuses um, have early voting. 70,000 people have already voted, yeah. which is a lot. It could, mean some, it could mean two things. It could mean no one shows up on, on Saturday, which would be too bad. Or it could mean that we're getting up to Obama 2008-level interest, which would be great for the Democratic Party. I, I, can't, I can't predict how many more people are going to vote because I'm not Nostradamus, to quote Jim. But mm-hmm. um, it's, it's heartening that 70,000 people have already voted. Now, I know the one question remaining which on your minds, which I'm going to answer right now, and then you can bleep me out of here, mm-hmm. which is, wait a minute. If 70,000 people have already voted, how are they going to do this viable, non-viable thing, walk over here? Because they're clearly not planning to attend the caucus. Excellent point. Exactly. What's the Ranked answer? choice voting. Mm-hmm. Hello's, oh. Hello, state of Maine. Ranked choice voting. Uh, somewhat, somewhat controversial and difficult to understand, but I'm sure your listeners who are smart know what that is, meaning you, you put down, let's just hypothetically, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Michael Bloomberg. If Elizabeth Warren is non-viable in the caucus that you're signed up mm-hmm. for, your, your vote goes to, let's say, a viable Amy Okay, Klobuchar. so how many, how many, if you're an early voter in Nevada, since you're an expert on the caucus system, how many uh, choices do uh, the early voters list in order on their ballot? I have no idea. I guess I do. I, I'd say five. Five is right. Well, was that a guess? Yeah. Well, it's five. That's the well, I mean, I read the story. Maybe I internalized you that. May, well, maybe it did. <laughs> so you, you do five P, and that was a big a source of confusion for a lot of people, and I think you explained it relatively well. 
I said, I mean, the high points are, are dramatic. Are uh, well, Saturday. Oh, Saturday. Fantas- that is big, I huge. mean, come on. I'm so with Why you. are we voting on Tuesday? So come on. It's, uh, and I mean, God bless. I don't know who's in Nevada. I, I mean, but somebody must be. So we hope, yeah, we wish them is. all the best. That was that. That was really useful, and no, it was and good. No, it's kind of you to say. Relatively interesting, it was. It no, really I, was. I'd say it's three point seven on a five scale of interest. I, what do you say, Marjorie? I think a uh, a four point eight on a scale of five. Wow, that's very. Thank you, German. You know what? You know what? We have a lot of people that are really interested in ranked choice voting. How many times do we get emails Huge. about ranked choice? voting? We're going to do a segment on it in the next couple of weeks. It's actually well, you should, and you should get Jared Golden from Maine too to phone in because he owes his job to ranked choice well, voting. Well, don't don't you owe your tenure on the uh, Cambridge City Council to ranked choice voting, Jim? I owe my two year tenure on the Cambridge City Council to the work I did for the public in the decades prior to and my and the good judgment candidacy. of the men and Weren't women of Cambridge. Were you elected in ranked choice voting? I was. I was. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. I was. Did you come in first or second or I, maybe third even or fourth. fourth? Maybe keep going a little further. Fifth? I was no. the fifth person to qualify. Oh, she was the fifth you should person do, to qualify. Uh, by the way, that's not important. <laughs> I, what's really important is that I was elected. It's not, you know, how it many, doesn't... How many qualified? What? How many, oh, how many I'm qualified? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. What is that? Exactly. Five people qualified? No, there are nine. No, there are oh, nine, nine people on the oh, city okay. council. So you were right in the middle. That's not right bad. That's okay. not bad. That's exactly. enough of this. Yeah. And I do not have a concierge medical practice at my disposal. No one here does, apparently. Allegedly. No, I'm thinking about getting one, though. Maybe okay, the good. way to go. Or, Alex, get, your, or nice. get your plant styled. Okay, Same sorry. amount of money. Goodbye, Alex. <laughs> nice <laughs> to see you, Alex Stay Beam. in school. Alex okay. Beam. Thank you very much, Alex Beam. Alex Beam joins us every week. He's a columnist for the Boston Globe. His forthcoming book is Broken Glass, Mies van der Rohe, Edith Farnsworth, and the fight over a modernist masterpiece. Alex, thank you very much. Up next, we're going to be joined by Congressman Ayanna Pressley. We'll talk to her about the 2020 race and her candidate, Elizabeth Warren. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. And I think about a minute or so, we're going to be joined by Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who, as you know, I'm sure, is a national co-chair and frequent surrogate for Elizabeth Warren. You know, before she comes online, don't you always worry when you have a surrogate on that their candidate is going to do horribly the night before and you have to engage in a back and forth with them when they say how great their person did and you knew that they actually dropped a bomb? But obviously that is not the case with Warren's uh, standout performance last night. No? no, I mean, Warren was 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 really good. I don't think I've ever heard the words horse-faced lesbians or fat broads <laughs> articulated in a debate and she really stuck, stuck it right to Bloomberg with You should that. explain for people who didn't see the debate what she was well, I mean, that's what he's called women, and she was uh, going taking Bloomberg. him. This is what Bloomberg has called women, and a lot of other things he's called women and said to women and said about women that are they're pretty bad. And she went after him on that. She went after him about the non-disclosure agreements, and those are those. I think pretty horrible agreements where both sides, the the survivor of some terrible sexual uh, assault or sexual harassment, signs an agreement with the company to say nothing about or government. It exchange it's to muzzle for money. the person essentially. Yeah. By the way, that's why Gretchen Carlson was in town, formerly of Fox News, mm-hmm. who signed an NDA that Fox News will not release her from. And Diana DiZaglio is on this crusade as state senator about uh, uh, the. The situation she uh, suffered through in the when she was a member when she was a staff person in the House of Representatives before she became an elected official. So the NDA answer, I have to say, I think, uh, particularly in the era of Me Too, particularly when the Harvey Weinstein jury is deliberating, 
uh, is was pretty tone deaf to say the least. His position was Bloomberg. Well, they they want it. Those women want it protected. And Warren made the very fine point. Well, if they are, want to be released from the NDA, wouldn't you do that? And, and Biden did too. That's exactly. And Biden did too. He said over and over, you could release these women right now. And and I think Warren even said release them on na- release them on national television, uh, but he wouldn't do it. He was not prepared for that answer, which is which is really surprising when you think about it that they weren't not they were not. More I prepared. thought he was wildly unprepared. In any case, last night among all the live tweeting in response to the debate, which was classic, this one was highlighted by the Guardian. Here's what it said: Time to update Bloomberg's Wikipedia page. Date of death, 2-19-2020. Place Democratic debate stage. Cause Elizabeth Ann Warren. Joining us on the line is someone who might be in agreement with that tweet. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is one of Senator Warren's national co-chairs, a frequent surrogate around the country. Congresswoman, welcome to the show. Good to talk to you again. Oh, great to be with you, Jim. I'm just uh, coming from uh, getting my nomination papers. Oh. Uh, oh. Yeah. So. What does that mean? Apologies for being... Well, I'm, I'm running for re-election, and so I just uh, just left um, uh, the elections department and uh, got my papers. We have to get back on the ballot, and you know it's, it's that time again. So, gosh, it goes by fast, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> I know. So, what do you think? I think we know, know the answer to this. I, before you got on the phone, Congresswoman, I said one of the worst experiences Marjorie and I have is when we either have a candidate or a surrogate on the day after a debate. They did horribly in the debate before, and they have to pretend like their candidate did great. <laughs> it appears you don't need to do much pretending today, correct? Absolutely not. You know, she won the day. Um, I think she demonstrated uh, command of the issues. I also uh, appreciate that she brings that racial justice and equity lens to every issue. She doesn't pander and only bring up the racial disparities and injustices that have been created by policies. She doesn't only do that in black rooms. So the fact that she was um, overlaying every issue with that racial justice lens, whether we're talking about health care and the black maternal mortality crisis or climate justice and the environmental injustices disproportionately borne by uh, frontline vulnerable communities, or whether talking about uh, income inequality and the overlay of the racial wealth gap and why black entrepreneurship and making an investment beyond just tax breaks is critical. You know, she paints a, a, a picture for an aspirational world that I think is uh, attainable, given her thoughtful policies developed in partnership with community. It's the kind of equitable, just world that I want to live in and that I want my daughter to inherit. And I know that there are some in their uh, embedded misogyny and sexism who think that she was aggressive and unlikable. And... Um, Certainly, I disagree with that, and I, I do believe that what she did do was hold everyone on the stage, and Michael Bloomberg uh, particularly, accountable for his record, and she was defending survivor's justice, which, but, as a survivor, is certainly something I think we should be uh, affirming as a party and as a country. You know, uh, Congressman, you said a minute ago how effectively you think, not just last night, but uh, your candidate Elizabeth Warren's campaign has been on issues like racial equity or racial inequity, I guess you could say, and a whole variety of related issues. I was reading a Politico story, I think a day or two ago, about you being in South Carolina and making a bunch of appearances for her as a surrogate. When you were in South Carolina, the most recent poll showed only 6% of African-American voters, and by the way, as everybody knows listening, the majority of voters in the primary, Democratic primary down there are African-American, only 6% of them 
listing Warren as their preferred candidate. Why do you think the disconnect between those numbers and what you believe her message to be, Congresswoman? Well, let me just say this, Jim. You know me well enough to know that I don't ride the polar coaster. <laughs> if they were reporting her as, you know, uh, 80%, uh, we would still be running a hard campaign, meeting voters in community, and working to foster their trust and their confidence. What I found on the ground in South Carolina, and I'll be returning there again tomorrow, is that people really like her. Um, unprompted, people would offer that if I had a button on. It would just come to me and say that. But that they're afraid. You know, they keep bringing up this issue of electability. And so the fact that I've known her for a decade and can speak to her successful record of fighting and winning um, is resonant with people, as well as her message of big structural change. Why is there a deficit of trust? Not only because of uh, a corrupt, cruel administration right now, but because of decades of broken hearts, because of broken promises, because of broken systems. And her message of big structural change is resonant. And I'll tell you something else. When I was there meeting with clergy, who also know uh, Elizabeth to be a woman of faith and a former Sunday school teacher, which is also resonant to them, the, the black clergy there said to me, what I love about her is when I met with her, she asked me more questions. She listened to me more than she did talk. And they thought that that was a real testament to the type of leader that she is. You and know, I certainly agree. You know, Congresswoman, sometimes I feel like we're in this, well, I know we're in this big bubble here, uh, uh, being in, in Massachusetts and Boston and, and not getting around the country. You visited six states, including, as you just mentioned, South Carolina with Warren. I mean, what are you seeing? That it, Are there differences in what people are looking for? Are we missing the boat sometimes here in liberal Massachusetts? What do you think? No, honestly, the the burden of debt and the affordable housing crisis and the exorbitant costs of health insurance while still not having a health care system that serves everyone, uh, student loan debt, you know, the issues are the same wherever you go. And people are hurting and they're just afraid to believe. You know, that's, that's really all that I can say. Yeah. It's just, it's just palpable fear. And so what, what you do hear over and over again, and this is not unique to my candidate, is just people, they don't want four more years. They know we forget four more years. We cannot afford four more minutes of this administration. Um, can we talk about – parts cruelty and corruption. Can we talk about you for a second and your job, uh, if we can? You've mentioned the, the cruelty and beyond of the president. Now that impeachment was raised, he is an impeached president – but he's also an acquitted president. Do you worry about what power you and your 534 colleagues, counting the Senate, have to rein in an unaccountable president on anything, whether it's sending uh, 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 Customs and Border Patrol people uninvited to town, uh, having Barr be the rogue attorney general? Do you, do you, I'm sure you think a lot about that. How do you deal with that issue? Well, you're generous to include the Senate in that count. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I honestly, I don't worry about it because I have a job to do. And I'm just head down focused on that. And the reality is that I still believe we're powerful. Um, we have to continue to organize and mobilize. Um, this is not just about what we do within the corridors of Congress, um, but the... the um, 
the accountability that we push for as a collective and, and using the power of our committees. You know, I think A.G. Barr should resign. He has, uh, so far as I'm concerned, obstructed justice. He has proven himself to be uh, more interested in being Donald Trump's personal attorney um, than the people's attorney. But if he resigned today, we would still take him uh, to account before the Judiciary Committee, both in the Senate and the House. Um, and so we won't, we won't stop being in pursuit of justice. I mean, we do have an administration that has great contempt for Congress, for the rule of law, and I think for the American people. But I think if we just retreat, then they win. You know, Congressman, and one last, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say, Jim, we have had some victories. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I know we have to keep fighting. We kept the citizenship status question, you know, off the ballot. We were able to have the Medical Deferred Action Program reinstated. I led the fight and enlisted my colleagues just now with this imminent threat of um, CBP and ICE uh, raids in sanctuary cities to uh, demand that they reverse course. We have to exhaust every avenue. So that's from the courts to the lawmaking pen, to the streets and organizing. We don't have any other choice. That's it. We just don't. One last thing about that. Your candidate has said that if uh, if uh, Bard, Attorney General Bard does not resign, he should be impeached. Do you agree with Elizabeth Warren on that? I do. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Ayanna Presley. Sure. I also to say this. I think we can make this about the current cast of characters. And I just want to acknowledge that I know that people are fatigued by the state of things. Um, and, 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 and as exhausting as that is, what's more exhausting is injustice and inequities and living in the legislated hate and hurt from this administration. So we have to employ every tool available to us because at the end of the day, this is bigger than A.G. Barr and Donald Trump. This is about our democracy, the law of the land, the office of the presidency, and Including when we talk about my candidate, the reason why I was so uh, proud of her performance last night is that they have attempted to erase her, to erase her contributions to this, uh, to this debate stage, to the discourse, and the fact that she fought back so hard and so effectively makes me proud because if they put her in a corner, they're putting her plans and her visions in a corner. And that upsets me and troubles me deeply. So in all these instances, it's much bigger than any of the individual people. Where are you off to for her in the next couple of weeks? Are you, or, or what's your deal? Yes, I leave tomorrow. I leave tomorrow for South Carolina. So how, I will continue to be on the, on the road, yeah. You know, we've said to you before how surreal it must be from sitting in city council hearings to all of a sudden being on the stage you're on. What's it? We only have a minute or so left. What's it like for you being a lead surrogate for one of the handful of people who wants to be the leader of the free world there, Ayanna Presley? It's an honor. Listen, and I, and I want everyone to, to know that, yes, I'm doing everything I can to evict the occupant of this White House on behalf of my candidate and my senator, Elizabeth Warren. Um, and I continue to do my job. You know, I've introduced more bills than any other freshman member of Congress. In a moment, I'll be heading into a roundtable about my bill that just passed the House, the Comprehensive Credit Act, to address our flawed uh, credit reporting system. Um, and so I just continue to work. Um, Moving throughout the district, we had a, a Cambridge Town Hall. Um, uh, I'll be heading to Black History Month celebrations in Chelsea. So, you know, I, I can, uh, I think I'm proving what the Democrats prove every day. We can walk and chew gum. 
And um, and I'm loving it. And it's an honor to do it and to be a steward of our democracy at this inflection point for our country. It's great to Congresswoman, talk to you. thank you so much for taking the time. We much appreciate it. Thank you. Great job on the debate the other night, guys. Oh, thank oh, you. Thank very you. kind Thank you. you very much. I had all my makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> you are so superficial. <laughs> Congresswoman, great to talk to you. Ayanna thank Presley. you so much, Thanks. Congresswoman Anna Presley is one of Senator Warren's national co-chair. She represents Massachusetts seventh congressional district. Congresswoman Presley, thanks again, and thank you all for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can keep up with us twenty four seven by way of our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get you get your podcast. It's called Boston Public Radio. Tune in tomorrow or join us live at the WGBA studio at the Boston Public Library. Our medical ethicist Art Kaplan will be with us. Our media maven Sue O'Connell. Callie Crossley. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aidan Conley. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. What is on the award-winning, award-winning Jim Brady television show tonight? Thank you very much. Well, uh, speaking of Ayanna Presley, her chief strategist in her campaign, who does not have a candidate for president yet, Wilnelia Rivera and Steve Kerrigan, who ran the Democratic National Convention for Obama, also uncommitted. They're going to come on to talk about the Stone verdict and about the state of the race after last night. Christopher Muther wrote a great piece oh, about one I of the this. great dilemmas, the to recline or not recline, the great reclining seat dilemma on planes. And also he wrote a couple of really serious and important pieces in the last couple of weeks. He's going to join me, but most importantly, it won't be on our show tonight, but if you have failed to see Marjorie prepare for today's Boston uh-huh. Public Radio. I, mean, I look ridiculous. You don't look ridiculous I, at all. I've got two and a hand Can I get a sense I mean, a of this is really stand. important? Marjorie is okay. doing a shoulder stand. I am. I had just get done a headstand head. seconds before, but the camera <laughs> didn't work. And if you want to see her doing whatever that thing was, go to at Jim Browdy on Twitter. Okay. And you can give us your thoughts about that, and we'll yeah, be okay. back I tomorrow. I look a little silly, but that's okay. You don't look okay. silly at all. They Are said you, you look like you have Wicked Witch of the West socks or whatever I do. I have Wicked Witch of the West socks on. I absolutely do. That's right. I play the Wicked Witch. To the West, actually, back in uh, the original gym. I am Marjorie Egan. Uh, I am Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. We much appreciate Thanks it. So Please much, tune everybody. in tomorrow, or if you're in the neighborhood, stop by. It's really fun to stop by the WGBA studio at the Indeed. Boston Public Library. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a great day.